That's the best way to think about life. Uh, you're doing pretty good until the end, and then you bet all of your money, and uh, you end up getting negative $20,000 in jeopardy. Start the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one podcast stop for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody Elft, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Jamie Lewis, Mike Napier, and MB. But we have a special guest with us today. Uh, the first time in Box Office Pulp's history, someone with actual credentials and talent, I'm amazed, too. I think he accidentally wandered onto our set. Uh, we have with us artist, sculptor, Twitch streamer, uh, paranormal detective, and your new best friend, CJ Drayden. Hey, what's going on? I didn't know I got the badge of approval to in- investigate the, uh, the, para- the paranormal. Uh... I-, I just assumed it was like an un- undercover thing. <laughs> hey, it could be, yeah. Everyone's got to have a hobby. Now, Naturally, we brought you on here because you're not related in any way to the project we're talking about, so it's a smart choice on our part. But we're talking about Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostansky's practical effects-laden Lovecraftian love letter, The Void, which, if people are interested in, you can go check it out. Pause the show if you haven't seen The Void. Uh, Please come back, though. Please, please come back. Uh, Go to your Netflix account, and you can watch it right now. It's streaming. I highly recommend it. If you love John Carpenter, watch it. If you like John Carpenter, if you like Clive Barker, if you like H.P. Lovecraft, pretend Bark, uh, pretend uh, Carpenter and Barker got together at a bar in the '80s and drunkenly decided to make a Lovecraft film, and it was awesome. And it's called The Void. I thought you were gonna say drunkenly came together to make love, which I could yeah. have also seen happening <laughs> under the strobe lights. Just really graphic. I would hope. Can you imagine the special <laughs> effects and, and them fucking, uh, you know, making out and shit? Oh, with Carpenter oh. providing the score. All I know is a man who writes The Lord of Illusion, I would not trust him to put on him an actual condom. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the shit that would come out of that fucking thing. <laughs> uh, Cold Heart Canyon, no. Uh, <laughs> so, that was your last chance to get out of the spoiler free. If you care about spoilers, please stop the show, listen to The Void, and then come back, because we're going to just probably spoil the entire thing for you otherwise. That said, we warned you. So, MB, you watched The Void uh, today, actually, for the first time, right? So right. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on you. What was uh, your thoughts on the movie? What were your thoughts on the movie? Well, going into this, like, I had actually heard of The Void uh, a couple months ago, and it really interested me because, I mean, obviously, Carpenter, the influence there, like, the buzz around that was just amazing. And just the fact that they were using practical effects, it's like, okay, I'm in... I was insanely pleased with what I watched. It was like all the best parts of like in the mouth of madness. John Carpenter's the thing. Like it, it even reminded me of a lot of stuff like uh, like the original Halloween two and and stuff like that. Like just Very much, really yeah. claustrophobic horror, but at the same time like really well done eighties like existential sort of weirdness where you would have stuff like. Like, again, in the Mouth of Madness, which I, I, for some reason, kept coming back to. I think it was mostly the end, where it's just like a vortex and uh, just a a creepy dude standing there. A creepy dude who just walked out of a Clive Barker movie. (laughs) And Oh, skinless man. There was just so many, like, great reference materials being pulled into this amalgamation of something I had never seen before. Like, I... 
it was kind of amazing how the mystery of the movie kept you going along because you have no idea what it is. And that's so refreshing because movies nowadays, they happen to like, sometimes they spoon full, like they spoon feed you a lot of information that you don't really necessarily need to hear uh, ahead of time. And this one did a great job of just not really explaining much of anything that was going on. Even by the time the end credits roll, like you really don't, have a clear idea of what happened but at the same time you know enough to where it's like you, you feel satisfied <laughs> whatever happened it definitely wasn't good that's the way it remind me of, like my frame of reference for it always goes back to like everybody talks about all the different carpenter movies mine specifically for this is prince of darkness this is oh, super yeah. prince of darkness and and it the kind of exposition of it all reminds me a lot of that which was, I mean, Prince of Darkness, it was, um, the son of Satan is some green goo in that jar and wants to get out and possess somebody to then release King Satan um, from a mirror. That's all you need to know. Now, here's some spooky shit. It's all in the Bible. No, that's 100%. <laughs> right? That's that's in there somewhere, isn't it? Well, that was something that uh, fascinating Kostansky said. Like, their big influence, as far as that went, was Phantasm. Because Don Cascarelli, for that movie, picked the weirdest possible mythology a horror movie could have and then committed to it fully without even really going into (laughs) it other than the smallest details. And they said they just wanted to do that, but with an 80s aesthetic, which I fucking love. Uh, uh, One thing, CJ, that you mentioned actually before we started taping uh, was the idea of cosmic horror. And I think that might be something we're really going to start bridging into. I mean, small spoilers for Stranger Things. The overarching monster that we see in two, like even the trailers, is this otherworldly, gigantic, uncomprehendable beast. Uh, we've got It. That was a huge box office hit. And in the books, there definitely is that cosmic horror section to it towards the end, which I feel like we might get a lot more of in the second half, considering how successful the first was. They can, they can really expand and do new things. Do you guys think this might be like a the big trend you know like in the early 2000s we had kind of grungy ghosty horror and torture porn in the 2020s are we maybe gonna start getting more stuff here with these lovecraftian horror films well uh i'll, I'll start off this one by saying um if, if you really want to see the kind of art that uh that generations have to look forward to uh excluding music because no one knows what the fuck's going on in that scene but uh <laughs> It's just a lot of uh, a lot of folky bullshit. bands playing uh, singing saws. That's bullshit. Harmonicas. Um, I love it personally, but that's just me. I also live in a cabin in the woods. Well, if you're talking about blues, that's one thing. But uh, I don't know. That's a totally different conversation. But that's a whole like weird fucking thing to get into. But um, when you look at the way art and the, the type of things that art documents and in, in storytelling and narrative, you kind of have to look at what what's happening currently, especially in science. When you saw something like um, H.G. Wells writing War of the Worlds, half the shit that guy wrote about didn't even exist up until World War One. He was writing about all kinds of different technologies and fucking flamethrowers and all this bullshit that yeah, were never big old heat beams. Yeah, he, he that were never even around. And if you look at the, the what's really trending now in terms of the social sciences, you see a lot of tech influence type stuff that's. Um, you know, really futuristic, like the Hyperloop one, like everything Elon Musk is doing with Tesla and this whole fucking planetary Wi-Fi thing, or even Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about fucking astronomy and all this other different types of stuff. So when you start looking at really current events, 
in that way, especially science, because there's always this debate. Is science uh, the the, the people that make the breakthroughs or is it science fiction? Because who really invents the future? Because if you look at Lovecraft, that dude was writing shit that was completely unheard of and never never even dreamed about. Same thing with Edgar Allan Poe or, um, like, you know, I mentioned H.G. Wells or Jules Byrne. A lot of these guys, they were writing uh, stories and narrative about things that were completely inexplicable. Um, so you really kind of look at what's happening today in the, in the, in the social sciences. So, yeah, I do honestly feel we're going to go in that direction of the whole grander cosmic aspect of putting life in the grand scale of the of the cosmos in that way. So I just think it's it's the direction that uh, the human consciousness is moving towards because what is left in terms of you, know, there's always this conversation about originality. We're always looking, we're always diving, we're always seeking something to wander the mind and question and think about. Um, we need something more and just focusing on uh, like the interplanetary uh, type of th- content that we have here in terms of our experiences, they're limited now. New new experiences are very limited to the human mind because uh, to the human mind because we've been exposed to so much already. So what is out there left to fill that no pun intended void, right? Um, hey, things- wow, you said the title, and then this is where like the balloons come down, like we're taping Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> Or I get fucking splashed on like Nickelodeon. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's fucking gag coming out of the walls, but <laughs> I can definitely so, uh, see your yeah, points. Yeah, and uh, uh, one thing that always kind of jumps out at me is horror seems to find kind of cultural patterns exploiting fears that people have at the time. And for me, cosmic horror is that idea that you are so insignificant you don't have an impact. He even uh, said that in the movie where he's like, um, "I've been I've I've been chosen by things that are older than time." You yeah, know? yeah. And uh, that's a very you know when I heard that line, I. I've I've been to quite a bit of places in the world, and then the places that I've chosen to dedicate my passport to were uh, places in the world that where their civilizations have focused primarily on the study of time. I've been all through Mexico looking and drawing and painting uh, all the different Mayan ruins in my early 20s, and primarily because I got so obsessed with how like these ancient primitive civilizations tracked time. I went to Prague uh, last year specifically to go see this fucking clock that's in the Czech Republic in Prague, that's the towering on the side of this castle that has all these, if you look this thing up, it's fucking insane. Like the, just all the different things are on it. There's, there's literally hand dials on this clock that track the, the, the global position of the sun, the moon. Um, and uh, they're all, they're, they all have the symbols on it too. Like you see the sun uh, actually go around this astronomical clock um, as it goes through all the equinoxes and the, and the fucking, um, the, um, the astrological body. Just look at this thing. It's fucking mind blowing. It was built by a wizard. It has to be. <laughs> so, um, That's how uh, I feel about the mind calendar when people are like, oh, well, it ended. Well, yeah, because that was so, yeah, fucking like, really hard to make until that point. I can't imagine going any further. Well, when this guy said that comment in this movie, it's older than time, I really got fascinated with that idea. And I got uh, almost obsessed with it because for, for a long time, the uh, again, pun, um, the, my, my, my artistic tastes were very, very much involved in this idea that there is something out there that has been older than time that has given um, uh, mankind the knowledge to, to be able to track astrological bodies when we didn't even have fucking satellites or any of this kind of shit. So you know, when he said that, it, it just kind of was almost like, yeah, dude, I could totally fucking buy that line. Like there is something else out there that's completely older than the idea that we've rationalized time. So when you talk about fear, um, the horror genre manifesting itself out of some kind of fear, uh, I think now – 
the the global idea of of man man's fear is this idea that um, we are slowly understanding that we are not at the top of the food chain like we're just on a rock in the middle of this big ass nowhere and that's kind of scary for people because they feel like um, they have no purpose if that's if that's a real concept if that if that really becomes you know true so um, or if we start to accept that as a as a, uh, I guess you could say, a common thought that we we are just in this big ass nowhere, and there's cosmic events that would completely just destroy us in a second, like a supernova or being swallowed in a black hole. Like these things are so powerful, and they're just infinite, and they're just you know just fucking elements and shit that will just destroy us in a moment's notice, or a solar flare can come by and just fry us all. So this is a uh, this is a common fear that I think we're starting to grow and adapt to. So I I, I do think you're right in that sense. Yeah, and I, in my mind, it's a little bit maybe even more granular. Right now, it's kind of like an age of everyone gets a voice. Everyone has a Twitter account where they can put out their own thoughts and they can add to a giant conversation. But with all those voices, you have to worry about not being heard and you have to do something to stand out amongst everyone else. And I think cosmic horror can tie into that because you always have that nagging thought, what if no one's listening? I'm constantly screaming, but what if no one hears that? What is the, what is the caption for that movie that said that in space, no one can hear you scream? What was yeah, that, that, was, that was Alien, man. Yeah, Alien, Alien. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No one can hear you scream. I never really thought about it until you mentioned it, but that whole fear of the unknown really is something that's hit us, like as a Western society, in two big waves. Like in Lovecraft's time, we were facing our first, like the world's first true taste of real globalization, that all encompassing feeling that, okay, we have legitimate proof now that there is a world outside of our small town like all of this stuff is flooding us right now and for the first time we're realizing okay we really are fucking insignificant and like cody said it's like with social media popping up now we're hitting that like our generation is getting their first taste of that and i think that yeah. also came from a lot of poe too because poe's uh poe's very against the industrialized world and a lot of his stories he's he's one of my absolute favorites and he he had a lot of that claustrophobia, especially in like this dark idea of his the romance that he would talk about being very internal and and then the, you know having this sense of beauty, but having this sense of fear of all this other stuff that would literally drive people insane to the point of of, of murder. Uh, and and H.P. Lovecraft took a lot of that from Poe as well. Yeah, absolutely, I understand where you're coming from. I was I also just think just in terms of what you were saying earlier about the idea of that line just something older than time has chosen me. What's really fascinating. I think about the void is that it doesn't really like when you look at the stuff that's happening, like in quote unquote, our reality within the movie, there really isn't a definitive time place that we're placed in because it is very much like, okay, it could be the 1980s. It could be the 1970s. It could be now it could be anywhere, but, Everything that's happening around this event, like all, all the things that are happening beneath this hospital, are conquering in a place that, for all we know, is just some like staple in a timeline that was already predetermined. And it's it just it, it's very like the movie itself is almost made to be claustrophobic because you don't know really anything about the area beyond the hospital, beyond like that one road and that one. At the end of the movie, when they're in that that uh, that parallel dimension or wherever the hell they went into, when they went into that tetrahedral, when he pushed that fucking doctor monster into that tetrahedral triangle, 
and they they went into this other dimension. He's holding his wife's hand. You don't know where the fuck that is. And this idea that you're talking about, about just even on our micro level, we have no idea. Uh, and I mean this as a quote, when we are, we have zero fucking clue when we are right now. Well, the only thing that we have a reference for that is the, this idea of Christ. Like we, we base our relevance, um, from that point of, of his life and we can go back or we can go forward, but we really have no fucking idea when we really are. And I think that the ancients of this planet had a better idea of the cosmology of how we exist. The, the, the fucking Egyptians used to study re resurrection and uh, there was a Greek philosopher. This is how I really got into Greek philosophy. There was a Greek philosopher. I, you can't even find his fucking memoirs anymore that actually um, witnessed uh, a live Egyptian resurrection because the, the Greeks studied from the Egyptians, mathematics and all kinds of stuff. And he documented his account. And there was this whole idea that they would only perform resurrections when the planet was at a certain point in the um, in, in orbit because it opened up this quote unquote rift to the afterlife. And that's how they were able to fucking do this. So when you see these half, these half, uh, half beasts, half, um, man figures, Anubis and all that stuff, the jackal and whatever, this is how they were able to do it. They had a better understanding of time and where the hell we are in terms of the universe. All we have is one reference point, which was from this point of our, uh, quote unquote, uh, Western Christian background, which is the Christ life. But if you look at every other ancient civilization, it seems like they had a hell of a lot closer idea of where and when we are as a as a people. So when you see a movie like this and they talk about like the the even if they just tap it in there, like we got into this whole conversation about this one particular line. And I think that that stands that this just stands out in terms of volumes about how lost we are and how much information and how philosophical people can wonder about just this idea of when we are and what the hell what the hell that even means about you know the time factor and how scary that can be you get what i'm saying because it, it, oh, it's yeah, yeah. it's it, it's terrifying like the void and lovecraft both tap into very similar things and and it's concepts and ideas that we have lost as a modern society time as you said is like as it exists now is a man-made construct that we that we have essentially controlled and, and tried to shackle. The ancients understood time on more a cosmic level. Yeah, they were tracking fucking stars and planets that we 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 would never be able to identify without a fucking telescope. And and they for some reason when I was in when I was in uh, Yucatan looking at all this stuff for my senior thesis in college. I read this passage from this uh, Mayan priest called Paco Voltan or something, is, and he, he talked about this idea. He made a, like a prediction that uh, it was more like a prophecy that mankind would eventually destroy itself because it was slowly drifting further and further away from uh, their, their biospheric clock. And if we wanted to save ourselves from some kind of biospheric destruction, we had to return to living in natural time, which is something that's what they – they they were tracking all these different clocks and uh i don't i, I have no idea what the fuck he means by that i'm not a, <laughs> an ecological guru but it just sounds scary you know what i mean like holy shit dude like this dude, you get what i'm saying it's a very yeah, yeah, very yeah. Creepy thing. oh yeah especially all the things you hear i mean just in relations to doomsday clocks moving ever so closer to midnight or different reports on different things like uh global warming uh impacts that we've had on our environments yeah you hear those kind of things you can definitely identify the wisdom to them 
No one fears time more than the basic human psyche. And it's all kind of based around older civilizations understanding the pure implications of time and understand the universe itself. And this is something we've, uh, the, the void clearly understands uh, Lovecraft clearly understood and, and see a lot of great artists, I think who've uh, studied philosophy uh, and study ancient civilizations have come to understood and come to understand why we fear the unknown exactly, which the universe is in, we are a small part of an ecosystem of a living thing. The universe itself is a living thing, and there are many different components to that living thing. And with the void, when they're in that other world, you don't see, um, you know, a great giant being. You don't see Cthulhu or anything. The void is literally this space, this universe that has called to the doctor, who it's all connected in a you know celestial brain essentially and the idea of there literally being a universe that has to dumb it down a form of consciousness the interesting thing about that theory that idea that this is if if that and this is going on more of like a like on the science fiction side of the theory where now we're talking about the philosophy of the movie in a sense like if that were the case, like let's just say hypothetically this is this is real, like why would it be so fucking horrifying? Like you know what I mean? Like the yeah. shit that this is doing to people, like it's fucking insane. Like if this is like this infinite nothing and nowhere and you're one and everything is the same, why is it so goddamn grotesque? Like in, in not even in John Carpenter's The Thing is as grotesque as the movie came off. The thing itself wasn't innately evil. It was just trying to hide itself from being destroyed by this other species. It just so happened to fucking crash land here, and then it woke up from the the, the Swedes or the Norwegians or whatever the hell McCready called them. Um, um, so that they, it just happened to land itself here, and and we look at it as a horrifying organism because it's not natural to the planet that it's on, and we're like, oh my god, what the fuck is that? Like when McCready ran into the dog cage and he first saw that fucking dog breaking up. Can you imagine the horror that that dude experienced? Like, what in the fuck is happening to that dog? Um, so we look at it horrifying because we're seeing it through a human perspective. Yes. But the thing wasn't innately evil. He was just trying to escape being fucking executed. This, Nothing however, was malignant. It was just biological. Exactly. So in this movie, the void, this thing is innately evil. So this void, wherever the hell all this dark energy and stuff is coming from, that quote unquote consciousness, why is it so goddamn terrifying? And why is it uh, uh, ma- malevolent? Why is it? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, I would. I would almost take that in a slightly different point, though. Um, it's all about human perspective. We were talking before about how we don't know when this is taking place when they go into the void. Like that could be any. It's timeless. But also, there's points in the movies where they see tentacles, and then all of a sudden there's no tentacles, they're warped into different positions. I almost feel like when they step into the void, they could easily also already be tentacle monsters. I mean, he hacked up his wife once when she was mutating. They could be on the other side just refusing to see that reality. I I, I I think think it's just something so alien to them, they reject it out of principle. And uh, from the doctor's point of view, what he's doing is beautiful, and they're not monsters even. They're, They're a better form of life. So it's all down to a perspective thing to him. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, because uh, he was infatuated with the monsters, like he fucking loved what he was doing. If and that's the case, you can go that that the girl was beautiful. If you look at uh, if you look at the movie um, uh, Covenant, uh, Alien Covenant, where David was um, using uh, the engineer, um, the engineer's vial of all that black yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. 
he was creating the the perfect organism, but however this this perfect organism just wanted to fucking destroy everything. You know, in his perspective, this thing had just about everything that needed to survive in the universe, void of uh, of all the crap that humans do. You know, the the one thing, and I know we're kind of getting off topic of movie, but the one oh, thing, oh god, that does not matter in the slightest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it, it still is on the same relevancy in terms of the cosmic universe on that in that scale. But uh, right. it's interesting when you put something like humans and an android in the cosmos, and then where uh, what was it, guy? He was uh, Peter Whalen, and he yeah, said, yeah. "Oh, you are you're so amazing. You're this. You're that." He's just fucking stroking his ego, and then uh, he says, "Now go get me a cup of tea." Yeah, he's got a. Kind of push back on him. I'm mastering your like, slave. I don't know. Go get me a cup of tea, David. He's kind of like he's like telling him how fucking great he is. And then he just demoted him to being a slave. It's just like, fuck, man. And then you wonder why he went crazy. Um, and then there was another great line from that when uh, when what's his face in Prometheus. I don't know. a lot. Of, there's a lot of drama about this movie, but I, th- I loved it. I thought it was fucking awesome. <laughs> Um, it was uh, one of our first episodes. I think it ran for 19 weeks. We just took forever making this thing. It was a very long episode about how much we love Prometheus. So I wrote from the poetic era. I, I absolutely fucking love that movie. And I know that's a conversation itself. So let me just talk up on this one piece of dialogue and we'll get back to the point. <laughs> All right. when, when David was at the pool table and he got the vial from that monolith where the, um, and he brought it back to the ship and Dr. Holloway is very disappointed. He didn't get to meet and talk to one of the engineers. That's what he came out here for. And he's sitting there throwing the cue ball, and he and he said, uh, you know, uh, he, I wanted to talk to him to get answers and all this other bullshit. And he goes, uh, well, um, how, what, why did you think your people made me? And he says, we made you because we could. And he's like, can you imagine how disappointing it would be to hear the same? And he's like, I guess it's a good thing you can't be disappointed. Now, take something that doesn't necessarily have a an emotional conscience, and you put that in the universe. And then you throw humans in there, and then you throw some fucking unknown entity like a void or an alien, and who the hell do you think is going to survive? And then you think it's no wonder why we'd be so afraid of not knowing when we are, where we are, or what the hell's out there, because we have no idea what forces out there that may be malevolent or benevolent, or if uh, we're even fucking welcome here. Or if, let's say, the Prometheus theory was true, and we they just fucking used this as an experiment, and... Uh, uh, we're, our, it was just our job to be staying in this side of the universe, and then you have this a complete fucking full uh, science fiction reality, twenty million light years away. You get what I'm saying? So who the hell knows? Yeah, yeah. And um, where that void is, and what it is. All you know is that there's this massive floating fucking pyramid at the top of this thing. And I wanted to ask: Do you guys think there's going to be a sequel to this movie to explain any of this stuff? Uh, I've I feel feeling, like they would yeah. want there to be, but I don't know if that would actually happen. I mean, the, it got a lot of press, so hopefully, I have no idea what it did box office wise. I'm hoping it did. Good Movies money. like this really don't. I mean, it's cool for people that are really deep thinkers to talk about this, but they don't make money. That's why yeah. horror never really made the mainstream. I mean, in this case, I mean, when you're down to crowdfunding, automatically you're kind of pooched because how do you get it marketed? It's all kind of word of mouth or whoever's willing to help help you and your supporters. You don't have like a hundred million dollar marketing department like Fox does for something like Prometheus. So trying to regain that capital, I'm sure, is incredibly difficult. Well, I think if, if, if at this point, if these guys put out like a Kickstarter or a, a FundMe page or something like that for another movie, I'm pretty sure they'd fucking make their budget. No problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. Astro's oh, uh, done a couple of things. Uh, I don't know if you've seen uh, Manborg, but that was also uh, this crew. <laughs> We're big fans of Manborg. Oh, yeah. Uh, that one's much more of a comedy, but uh, it's still, I, I think, phenomenal, <laughs> hilarious work. I wanted, I wanted to ask you if you guys had seen a... 
leave it to a Greek to create a completely weird mythology. But this guy's name is Panos Cosmatos, and he's from he lives in Canada, and he made a movie called Beyond the Black Rainbow. Have you guys seen this? Oh shit! I've oh seen fuck! The I know that. that. I haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, what? it's on my to watch yeah. list, man. You want to talk about something trippy? This movie's fucking out there. Uh, it's almost incomprehensible, but it's it's a lot of people compared it to. 2001 a space odyssey because of the just the way that the movie progressed is very slow pace it was very surreal it was a hell of a lot more cerebral and just completely like acid trip and they even show a lot of this stuff in the movie but it was man you guys gotta see this and then come back and then uh just have maybe make a podcast about this movie alone because it's fucking out there man and then movies like this regarding the void it's very rare that very unique people that have a really unique vision on horror or something like that, uh, you know, managed to get the funding for stuff like this because um, it's so different and it's so unique. Go, going on to my work, I, I mean, I have I know a lot of these guys in the comic industry, but I can't get any cover work or get any jobs out there because my shit is so different. They're not, they're, they they want to just keep the same shit in circulation. So it's it's just how, it's how the industry is. They want to yeah. secure, this isn't, as much as it's about the arts, it's more about the bottom line. But you want a safe bet. You want something you know will make a return. You don't yeah, want to people risk it. want cookie cutter when it comes to specifically horror, and it's only now, in the last few years, that we're seeing horror break out more back to that artistry that that horrors always had, and it kind of and it always tends to come in waves like that, uh, and then it kind of well, goes back into that cookie cutter mode. Going, then we'll finally get a good fucking Lovecraft movie. Some hopefully. <laughs> God, I. hope. I mean, I'm I'm still still I mean, I think about the, the loss of uh, Guillermo del Toro being able to do his. I, I I dreamed about that movie so much, and the fact that he couldn't even get it done with Tom Cruise attached and James Cameron producing. It, uh, I still really wasn't that impressed by that script, but I still wanted yeah. to see that movie. It was I just too much of a thing remake it. to me. But you know yeah. why they keep failing to hit mark on on a Cthulhu movie or something like that? It's because they keep failing to to get the perspective right. If you really want to make a Cthulhu movie work. You don't do it in the form of this fucking guy running around tr- investigating this dream people keep having. You do it in the perspective of the tribe because how do you make this thing believable? You have to have a fucking a, a group of people that actually buy into this deity. Just kind of like if you look at Apocalypto, that's fucking mm-hmm. Cthulhu just with a goddamn sea beast. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Oh man, just imagine though at the end of the movie instead of like Columbus sailing up on his ships or whoever it was at the end of Apocalypto, it was just Cthulhu rising out of the ocean. Yeah, and all these fucking little things going Cthulhu Vatar, Cthulhu Vatar, all that, you know what I mean? The fucking um the order of the esoteric order of Dagon. That would be the way to do it. And then you have all these guys raiding this tribe and throwing them in jail, whatever the hell that was that scene was it's been a while since I read it, but that would be the perfect way to do it. Because um, how do you take something that is so fantastical and unbelievable and make it believable? You have characters that fucking believe it. And that's what that whole statue was about. And here they are doing this pagan rituals and all this shit to this massive uh, octopi face thing. It'd be insane. It'd be amazing. I think that would be the perfect way to go about doing it. That's my It would make though. it so mind-bendingly disturbing, too. Did you ever see the uh, the Lovecraft Society made a silent film version yes. of Call of Cthulhu? Yeah, it's like a 40-minute uh, no. long, silent, black-and-white version of the Call of Cthulhu, uh, like using a stop-motion Cthulhu monster at the end and stuff. It's fairly faithful to the book, uh, oh, yeah. and they, they use their budget limitations. They kind of embrace them by doing it as a silent movie. It works pretty damn well, actually. And Cthulhu looks awesome. Like, that entire sequence that relay. That wasn't even my favorite. My 
favorite Lovecraft is uh, um, The Shadow Over Innsmouth. The reason why I love that one so much is because, uh, um, well, there's a couple of reasons, and I'm biased because there's a, I don't know if you guys have heard this, um, but the, the Atlanta Radio Theater Company did live reenactments of his stories, and it was like theater-based performances, but they recorded them with different voice actors and sound effects, almost like what, um, uh, what's his face, bro? Uh, uh, Citizens Kane. What the fuck's that guy's name? The actor. Um, Orson uh, Welles. Welles. What he did with uh, War of the Worlds with all the radio production. That's yeah. what he did with Lovecraft. If you go on iTunes, you can buy these fucking, they're like three bucks. You can buy these uh, recordings. They're like hour, two hours long. They do full awesome. reenactments of his stories. The one they did of Shadow Over Innsmouth totally changed the perspective of me. It, it was amazing. Um, the way this guy was going through this town and the voice actor describing this and having these interviews with the people looking at the tiaras and describing uh, the, the town, how it was destroyed, and, and the way that the people looked. Um, it really changed the, 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 the perspective of that story. It's very fucking creepy. And I guess for me at least is because I, I kind of go and travel to like these off-the-beaten-path places to get inspiration. Let's, like I was saying this last year, I went through Czech, Czech Republic, and I went through Romania. Uh, I took a sketchbook through Romania, and I just backpacked to go to all of Vlad the Impaler's castles. That was been a childhood <laughs> dream of mine, and it was fucking awesome. I had a great time, but you- It you, does sound you, fucking awesome. You see a lot of derelict places. You, I mean, you have seen poverty like I've never believed I would see in, in Eastern Europe, but so when I, I would listen to um, that fucking story of the Shadow of Innsmouth and the way he was talking about these this town, um, Innsmouth, it just, it was a little bit more real to me because I've kind of like experienced those derelict places and it just filled my head with some R's. I, I, I couldn't get my head around. So when he's trying to get away and he's hearing the fucking locks and the doors banging open, he's jumping out the window and he's trying to hide from these fucking creatures from um, the esoteric order. It just it's it's bone chilling, man. Like you gotta read, like listen to these these recordings. It's fucking awesome. It, I could never go back to listening to audiobooks again. I read a lot, but I don't listen to audiobooks. But I, I would never be able to listen to audiobooks after hearing these these live performances. They're incredible. They really Sounds are amazing. Yeah, you can awesome. find them on iTunes. They have them for um, at the Mountains of Madness. They have them for uh, Dagon. Dagon was pretty good, but uh, the Shadow of Innsmouth was definitely their best performance. Uh, I they gotta check this out. I'm very unimpressed with most other Lovecraft's um, audiobooks, so this sounds awesome. No, I would I would not rave about that kind of shit. But this isn't even an audiobook. It's a theatrical performance that was recorded for radio, and they did them live at DragonCon in Atlanta uh, wow. several years back. They're fucking amazing. They're, it's really awesome. Awesome. Speaking of At the Mountains of Madness, it blew my mind to read an interview with uh, Jeremy Gillespie where he revealed what the origin for the void was, which was he was working in an office that was like one floor above where Del Toro was working on At the Mountains of Madness. (laughs) And he just... He was doing that project when he was trying to get that project. Yeah. And he just overheard him talking about how he was going to do Lovecraft in a way that no one had ever seen, but wouldn't go into detail. So that captured his imagination <laughs> for years, imagining what, what would that have been? How can you do Lovecraft in a way no one's seen? And after Mountains of Madness folded, he just thought, well, maybe I should do that. <laughs> Someone's got to well, step in. The thing about Guillermo del Toro, too, is... This guy is so capable of doing very unique, interesting artwork, but he always gets pigeonholed into doing all this fucking like big, big budget pop culture garbage like uh, Pacific Rim. 
you you look at his uh you look at his like personal stuff like Pan's Labyrinth. It's fucking incredible work. And this is the kind of shit that this guy could dedicate his life to making fucking amazing art. But obviously he has to get the money, so he does these bit. I don't know how I felt about Pacific Rim, but I just thought it was a bullshit movie. Especially because like you look at what the guy's capable of, and this is the kind of shit he's putting out. It's like, come on, man, like get like get your shit together. <laughs> like stop doing this garbage and do good stuff, you know? We don't need the strain. Well, I mean, it's easy for me to say that. But I, I know he probably got paid $10 million to make that movie, and that would give him the money to do other things. So I'm not in that scene, but uh, it just – even – but here, that's the funny thing about um, the kind of conversation we were having prior when I first got on, which was having to do certain things um, to get to where you want to go, like the show I was telling you I got option for. Even someone as big time as Guillermo del Toro still has to do those kind of projects to do the kind of shit he wants to do. Isn't that fucking insane? He has a, a big enough name in the world to be able to say, hey, I want to work on this project. I'm going to go do it now. But even still, he has to fucking cater to the machine. It's crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, you follow his career, and he normally announces like 10 projects at a time because he's trying to make anything, and he knows most of them are going to die. His name alone is not to get enough to get these things made, which is a real shame. Uh, I don't know if you followed all the Pinocchio movie he was trying to make. But that was yeah, just announced was, dead um, the other day. I, 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 he, he was coming out. It, it was based off of Gris Grimley's book, uh, yep. Gris Grimley's version of Pinocchio. And the only reason why I even knew this existed, because at the same time Gris Grimley was releasing his Pinocchio book, I uh, got endorsed by Stan Lee to release The Wooden Heart, which was my <laughs> Pinocchio book. <laughs> I love it when those kind of things happen, like you have uh, Armageddon and a Deep Impact at the same time. Well, um, by, by no stretch of the imagination did my book do better than Gris Grimley's. Um, uh, Gris Grimley's a big shot illustrator. Um, I, I, was name. his book endorsed by Stan Lee, though? Hmm? Sure, but I, I'm an independent content creator, an artist that with no uh, backing by any studio. You're talking Gris Grimley's been doing projects with Pixar and all these other big big shot companies, so he's got a hell of a name. I'm, yeah. I'm solely independent, so uh, it's a big... Uh, and on top of that, he was being optioned by Guillermo del Toro. I mean, that's fucking crazy. Sure, my book got endorsed by Stan, but um and I met him and I hung out with him a couple of times. He's a nice guy, but it's it's um it's very it's very different when you're working with someone like Guillermo del Toro who's in his fucking artistic prime and uh being recognized uh, him recognizing you're saying saying I want to do your shit as a movie. That I don't think I would survive that interview. I think I'd just die. You know what I mean like with so there's something very- incredible about someone saying, I want to spend a, spe- a very long, specific portion of my life trying to do your thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very flattering thing. Like I said, uh, Gris Grimley is a great illustrator. His book is awesome. I have his Pinocchio book. It's really cool. And I, I, I felt that uh, uh, they would have did an amazing project. I, again, the only reason why I knew about it is because I was trying to get mine done. Um, and I was looking for a publicist and all that stuff, but it just went straight independent, and I I produced it myself. Um, and uh, again, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not one of these types of artists that's um, trying to get into um, awards and all this shit. I've never really been that fucking vain. In fact, I really don't care for those that kind of notoriety. I I it's it's personally satisfying for me to at least know that I'm finishing fucking projects and I'm getting things done and people are seeing my stuff. I've never really been this kind of guy that wants to do things to get the notoriety and to be, you know, Mr. Big Shot so-and-so. It doesn't really matter to me um, wh- whether things take off or not I, because it's just it's just enough good enough for me to know that I had some thoughts like the first time I went to Greece and I was 
looking for the inspiration to write a new book. And I started coming up with all these ideas because I read a lot of physics and I like astronomy and I love Greek mythology. And I started coming up with these ideas to mix these parables together and how I can write like a fantasy a story. I wanted to write something fun like Sandman where you're following a, this kind of cosmic deity on a journey to complete his task. And I really like Sandman, so I thought I would kind of use some of the structure of that to build my own fantasy. And I like a lot of mythology and uh, in, in the Greek sense. So I was out there doing this project and I'm thinking to myself, cool, I'm just going to get this fucking thing done. It was, it never occurred to me. Let me enter this into a contest. Let me see if I can get this option to a film. And maybe that could be, that could be a bad thing. Cause that, that mentality of just being um, just the lackluster side of the, the, the limelight, I don't really care for. Um, but at the same time, it's just good enough for me to get those thoughts and that artwork out and those ideas out so I can move on to something else. Like that was out of my mind. Let me try to see what I can do. It's purely about being better as an artist and as a storyteller. That's, that's my, my whole motive. Yeah. I know I kind of did that, that um, segue. I don't know if you saw that into the artwork. <laughs> it was smooth as butter. Honestly, better than most of the segues I've ever done in my life. But I have to ask, so when, when something comes out, like you realize there's the Grimly version of Pinocchio and you've got your version of Pinocchio, do you like have to hold off on reading his until you're all done with yours, make sure it doesn't touch anything you're doing? Or do you have to read his to make sure you don't touch anything? No, he's his, is, his, is just, his is just the original lore um, with his illustration. It's just basically... Gotcha. It, mine was a very different idea. Like it... Uh, yeah, the the real a lot of the reason why I like a lot of this trippy surreal shit is because I'm a pretty I'm a pretty deep guy and I think a lot and and I, I read a lot and um, a lot of the things that I write are very they they have there's a poetic sense to the the, the way that I write but it also has a lot of really unique cadence and uh, rhythmic fashion to it so it's kind of like poetry in a way but at the same time I, I'm trying to I was trying to incorporate story structure into it. With with the wooden heart, it didn't really happen that way. It was just this gigantic streaming flow of consciousness with panels to follow this character out, so you can kind of match the imagery to what the personal poem was about. Uh, it was a very dark, very surreal story. It had it was very it really had nothing to do with Pinocchio. It was more just like a um, I used it as a as a tool to tell a, a message to send a message through the book. You get what I'm saying? So the the things that I that that was. I guess the reason why I wrote that was because there was a time in my life where I was going through some things and for some, I just, I was sitting in my dorm in college after I had got back from this, this Mexico trip to do my thesis and I was dealing with a lot of things, uh, a lot of it from childhood and I was just, I, I, I had a bottle of, I had like a fucking handle of tequila or something and I just saw the Pinocchio book on my, my bookshelf in my dorm and I just picked it up and started reading it and I just entered it with a different state of mind and the way that I had written The Wooden Heart kind of I was seeing that as I was reading Pinocchio so I just wanted to kind of start out this idea of getting into what I truly love which is telling stories with a Pinocchio story just to kind of get some of those things out and that's why I went to Greece to get into something that was made me feel good and and always had a capture my imagination when I was a child which was the Greek mythology because I wanted to take the lessons I learned after building that project from just being a complete personal surreal fucking dark place in my head and then actually get into telling stories about a character that you can follow on a fantasy journey that has um you know deep content the kind of things i like to read about which is fantasy and physics and stuff like that but make it fun for people to want to read and follow your character so those are the things that i was learning from that and that's technically why i'm going back because i when i went to greece the first time 
I was just in, I was in awe of everything I was seeing. It was just this massive ancient world that it, it looks like it was, it's, it's like some shit out of Lord of the Rings, like you, you've never seen before. And I, I really couldn't get any drawing done because I was completely overwhelmed with the just sheer size of this fucking place, this, em, this ancient empire. And so the, the ideas were, it was just like a river of quicksilver. And now that I've, I've written half the book and I've been doing all the, the work for the book live on Twitch, um, there's so many different things now at the point in this book where I'm going in the Zero Mirror. It's the name of the project. Um, now it's like, okay, now there's specific things that I want to go see. Now there's things that I want to go get more into, get more knowledge and get more inspiration from. Like the, the Zero Mirror is a portal in the center of the universe. And uh, the Minotaur is blocking this portal from uh, my main character, which is Pluto, from going through. Uh, because he thinks his orbiting moon got sucked through it. So the whole book is about my the planet pluto his orbiting moon gets lost and he goes on this fucking grand journey through the through this universe that i'm building to find this moon he gets sucked into all these different planets and creatures and you know you really don't know what's inside the zero mirror but all you know is that the minotaur is blocking it off and if he wants to go through he's got to go through 10 trials and the trials send my character all around the, the fucking universe and there's a lot of deep thought in it but there's a lot of fun there's a lot of action there's a lot of cool stuff in it that i get into and again there's a lot of it's with greek mythology so going with the idea of going back for specifics. Now I want to go to Crete because, um, to see this fucking labyrinth, if it's still around, I know they've lost oh, it. Near my dream. Because, yeah. Because they, they lost this fucking thing. Uh, I guess, um, the Nazis used it as a weapons cache, the actual fucking labyrinth that the, that the, the, the myths were based off the Minotaur. So they used it as a weapons cache and then I guess they hit it. So I think this thing's been lost during World War II, but then I was doing some more research, and there's this ancient city, um, maybe, I don't know, three or four hours from the main airport in Crete, and they say that the labyrinth is right there. Now, whether you can go in or not, I'm not sure. I think they found it or they were hiding it. I'm not sure. I but believe I you can go in. It's, it's, you have to, it's not guided necessarily, but you have to go in with a, with a lifeline. Um, I, I've, I've seen there are uh, some people who go in and they're actually um, kind of in the center of it because it kind of goes all completely underneath Crete. They know that there's there's caverns, but I don't know if that's the actual labyrinth. They were saying that they know that the caverns are there, but they're not sure if that's the actual labyrinth that the that the myth is based on. Uh, it, it might be because there's um, kind of there's sort of that, and then uh, there's a lot of theory that the myth is also based on kind of the main temple in Crete, which is sort of uh, if you ever seen the inside of it is. Re- is ridiculous. It makes no yeah, logical sense. Something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it, it's very interesting. I think the cool thing, though, about the one that goes underneath Crete is that uh, people uh, tend to sign their names when they get to the center of it. So you see all of these like names dating back, you know, decades and decades and decades and decades and decades. See, I'm and not sure if I can fill that because I'm extremely claustrophobic. I, I, I hate tight spaces. You want to talk about horror movies? That fucking movie, The Descent. <laughs> Could never watch that shit again. <laughs> or uh, that movie with Ryan Reynolds, Buried, where he's in the fucking. Oh movie. God! Oh it God! Buried is just a heart attack. It was yeah, happening. I couldn't, I couldn't dude. I, it took me maybe ten hours to watch that movie because I just kept stopping it. That's why my worst fucking fear: uh, being buried in a coffin alive. Fuck that shit. So going inside that labyrinth, I don't know if I'll make it through there because I'm I'm kind of a pussy with that kind of stuff. But uh, um, it just a it's just a mentality like 
because I, I, my mind starts racing. What if this fucking thing collapses on me and I'm stuck down here and I have to end up drinking my piss for four days until someone comes digs me out? You know what I mean? Like, fuck all that, man. What a cool way to die. You were killed by the Minotaur's Labyrinth. <laughs> I'd like to finish this goddamn book, though. <laughs> you know, earlier you hit on something, CJ, that has been on my mind a lot lately. And that's that modern pop culture has... I feel like we've kind of trained people to view stories and the characters within those stories as something to consume. But I, I feel like we're kind of losing the idea of characters as tools. Like, there's a reason all of those uh, characters in mythology, all of those Greek gods are still around and still have like a visceral connection to some people. Like, that archetypes like that... That kind of stuff is just hardwired to the human brain. And they're, they've been around for all this time so we can use them. So we can use these characters to battle all the shit that tries to bring us down on our lives. Yeah, true. I also think that, bef- I mean, again, you're talking about BC timelines. So this wasn't just mythology. This was actual gods to these people. You know, when I, you know last time I was in Greece, I was hanging out. I checked into the hostel that I was at. I just crashed in a hostel. Keep the fucking budget slow. You just go out there and uh, you meet some really fucking cool people around the world when you do that, man. It's really fun. It's almost like an RPG game. You meet all these different people together <laughs> and you go off and see shit and your party breaks up. It's very, it's fucking awesome. So I was talking with this guy at this bar, older gentleman, uh, native Greek. I guess he met some fucking French girl at the hostel and uh, I guess he fell in love with her and he was hanging at the hostel all the time. So um, he's actually a good friend of mine today. And uh, He's picking me up at the airport when I'm going back. When I go back, and this guy is a super cool dude. And this is just the way the Greeks are. Now, what, what I'm regarding what you're saying, getting back to the point here, um, I sat down with this dude at the at the bar in the hostel for like I was just there drinking. And he just started talking to me, and we just started bullshitting. He's like, "Oh, so what brings you to what brings you to Greece?" I was like, "I don't know, man. I've just been wanting to come here since I was a kid. Like I've always been fascinated with it, reading the lores." Um, I, I'm, I'm heavily love Plato's dialogues. I think they're just so fun to read. They're very, they help you think critically. They're just really interesting dialogues. And, uh, the guy was just super, he's like, Hey dude, you want me to take you where fucking Socrates drank hemlock? I'm like, fucking <laughs> yes. <laughs> what I mean? that yeah, was- why not? So I just jumped in this dude's car and, and this is the way the Greeks are. They're very, they're very open, but people like foreigners that come to see their, their land, their culture, they just. They, they love that shit. They'll invite you right in their homes, homemade wine, fucking octopus and olive oil right out of the Aegean Sea. They'll just fucking feed you and talk and bullshit, and they'll be your best friend. So I met this dude, and like within a couple hours of just drinking at this bar, he just, I just jumped in his fucking car. He took me to the grounds where Plato's school was. Um, I took, I, he took me to where Socrates was imprisoned and was forced to drink hemlock. Um, and we just started bullshitting, and then we became good friends now. Um, so I asked him about a lot of this stuff, like this idea of these these lores and, and what he felt about a lot of these kind of things. And you have to remember this one thing is that these people, this wasn't just like pop culture the way that we use it. This was shit that they I mean, look, man, they they built fucking temples to these gods. Just outside Athens, there's a massive fucking ruin that's still standing today that is a temple to the god of Poseidon. This isn't just like mythology or, or pop culture, the way we view Batman or Superman. This was their fucking way of life. So the, the fact that this wasn't just like a myth, this was an anthropological sense. Like this is the way they lived their lives. They had, you know, I mean, think about it like this. When I was in Delphi, 
when you look at the the navel stone where the oracle would sit, you're talking about a virgin girl where these people would go to uh, and to this fucking stone, and that would dictate the conduct or destruction of a fucking country. That is insane, dude. Like the fact that a, a standing army would take their marching orders from like a 13 year old virgin on a stone. Uh, so when you think about this type of idea and these lores and the way that these cultures lived, I think that's why these things have survived so long is because it was a way of life, man. Seeing the Acropolis, seeing the Temple of Athena and all this shit, the Temple of Poseidon, or even the, the, the notion that there is a labyrinth under the island of or within the island of Crete that they believe the Minotaur, they trapped, Dalius trapped that motherfucker in there. Like, uh, And I think he's, if I, my, my, my mythological brain serves me correct i think that the minute the poseidon that's the son of poseidon it was like i think he raped some fucking mortal and he gave birth to this minotaur right i think that's what it was, it was very uh, kinky if i remember yeah the minotaur the Greek- is the uh is the offspring of the um the queen of crete and a bull that was birthed from the sea uh from poseidon yeah so you think about this kind of shit this is the stuff that they believe and then and then, and that's when the Christ thing came around, and the parables and the mythology changed. So, um, it, a lot of that stuff did. Norwegian mythology, you know, uh, when the Crusades went there, a lot of that Thor, Loki, all that stuff started to disappear or fade into just mythology, or uh, um, just like this polytheism type stuff. Uh, but it's still alive and it's still well today because this is an ancient culture that's been around for thousands and thousands of years, and it's captive about imaginations in a sense that it's like, man. Uh, how so? You, you know, the the in Norway they'd see a fucking aurora borealis, you know, at that point and 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 on the planet, and they just think it's fucking Thor riding around on his chariot. You get what I'm saying? So it's a very different, um, it's a very different way of viewing the world, and I think it's so much more fascinating. And I think that's what we're we're taken by, at the romanticism of those types of lores and those types of gods that could very well be like, you know, I think in this Chinese uh, lore, I can't remember what it was. Um, that the earthquakes are are because of this fucking sea god pinning down this fucking fish, and he's trying yeah. to get up, and that's what an earthquake is. And that shit is it captivates the imagination. It really it gives a sense of wonder to the world. So I think that's why it has survived. You're right. It, it survived this long because it's it, you, we almost do kind of need that sense of wonder. And it, going going back to the the cosmological thing, and I think this is why pop culture or horror at least is moving in that direction. Um, because we need a different sense of wonder. The world has become so small with the internet. And, you know, I've kept in touch just through WhatsApp with friends in, in Romania and Greece and stuff like that. It's such a small world now. We're looking for something grand and bigger and, um, that, you know, maybe we're not going to find our purpose here on this planet. Um, but, um, you know, you're right. We do need these things. I'm not sure where you were going with this idea of the character notion of uh, characters have become cookie cutter in a way or, or use as tools. I'd like you know, to go on that. Well, just the idea that I feel that with modern society and modern audiences, we look at the we look at the characters that move us. Uh, there's a certain lack of respect, maybe lack, lack of o- o- homage there, because I feel like. When we look at characters as tools and we look at character at you know archetypes of mythology as tools as things to get us through life and not just a glass of wine to chug at the end of the day, I think that it, that can inspire us to do great things like like in what you were saying earlier, how 
you didn't expect, you know, Pinocchio to randomly be there for you in your college days. But there was something about just opening up that book and that you know, mythological character at the oh, Pinocchio is pretty much mythology at this point that yeah. speaking to you on some weird primal level like that character unbeknownst to you was always there waiting for you to leap out at you at that moment and you know, grab you in that visceral way and i think that we've kind of lost something by it like that's the only thing i will say for religion is i think that in an increasingly secular world we're kind of moving away from the idea of figures outside of ourselves as something we can draw strength from yeah i see i know i definitely see what you're saying yeah it's um look and that's where um and that's why i've stayed uh very especially if you see enough of the world you you kind of keep yourself open to a lot of different religions because uh the fact that societies were built on these ideas of all these different types of gods and you know you got uh in, in the Mayan culture, they have fucking um, the Kukul Khan, the snake serpent, and all this kind of shit. It's just such an interesting thing to learn about, uh, all these different ways of perceiving the world, where all, where all these different icons and all these different things come from. Uh, and, and that's when you see enough of it, as an artist perspective, when you see enough of it. That's why I never really try to shame too much of this stuff. I, I'm just very objective person when it comes to a lot of this. Because a lot of different things inspire me to create or write stories. And, and I feel like the minute I start shutting something off, um, I, I feel like I might miss an opportunity to learn something. Uh, yeah. So using, using the Greek myths uh, as, a, as a way to um, go from one end of the spectrum of writing something that was extremely personal. I, I think the Pinocchio thing, using this as a, as a, as a tool to, to serve, uh, like was self-serving to get out some of my own dark, dark passions or pains. I was at a time where I was doing a lot of root stuff. My grandmother's from Sicily. My grandfather's from Italy. So I was indulging in a lot of different things and content from that. Hell, I even went uh, back to Italy several times to do my roots thing and then uh, went all the way into the middle of Tuscany to find this Pinocchio theme park that's just in the fucking middle of nowhere because I just had to see it. And it's not really a theme park. It's just like this little garden with all these different childlike attractions and sculptures it's like celebrating the literature and as you wander through these little fucking alleyways in this garden it like narrates the fucking literature for you and you're seeing all this different really cool art pieces and whatnot i just had to go fucking see it because it was on this this journey of self-discovery and figuring out myself and understanding where my family came from and putting a book out that was very fucking personal i i went in the complete opposite end of the spectrum writing a story which was fantasy. I wanted to do something that wasn't so personal, that had a lot of personal, you know, when you write, obviously, and you make art, it comes from a certain personal aspect, but it wasn't so fucking blatantly obvious that I was dealing with some things. You get what I mean? It was more of a, yeah. a journey, again, that you can follow a character on. And I chose to use the Greek myth because it, it just, it was something that made me happy. Now, going in terms of the excavation side, the idea of discovery and seeing all these different lores and religions and where all these different deities and stuff come from. I think a lot of the reason why I'm so open to learning about a lot of this stuff is it comes from childhood. I know it's going to sound really dumb, but uh, Super Metroid. <laughs> when, you look at, when you look at Super Metroid or a Metroid game in general, you are this scavenger 
in a bounty hunter suit going to all these different foreign foreign worlds and you're excavating and finding artifacts and building up your fucking suit and encountering all these different things and in the process of uh, you know ex- excavating this world and seeing this world you're encountering other different species that have left hieroglyphs telling leaving their story or why, how they they their 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 civilization fell and um, the kind of knowledge and the journey that they were on and how they were kind of one with the universe, like the Chozo or the Luminoth in Metroid Prime 2. Um, and, and to a certain degree, I've kind of like, I've almost adapted this. I was actually just telling my girlfriend this the other day. If you look at the things that I was into in my childhood and the way that I actually produce art today, it's very similar. You know, it, it's a, I'm just, I'm not Samus with a badass bounty hunter suit in a spaceship, but you know, I'm still kind of going off to these little foreign worlds and deriving inspiration from the, the knowledge that these cultures and, and their religions have left behind as musings of, of, a, of a distant ancient world that will never, ever exist again, that have left fucking artifacts and, and just like this very, very um, brief moment of history that you see these, these civilizations. It's just fascinating, man. It, it changes your life in a way, and, and it really does um, open you up to, to, to so many different ideas to create things. And, um, and that's why I've never cared about the award ceremony or any of it because the, the journey to me is the destination with all this other stuff, finding, finding purpose in what I'm doing, finding purpose in myself. And that's why I love exploring all these ancient mythologies and ancient gods and all these different religions of how they talked about the, one of the greatest tragedies in my mind was the, the burning of the library of Alexandria, because there's so much knowledge and so many different lores that we will never know existed. Um, because it's all gone. Um, there's, there's that knowledge is gone. Those lores, those deities, or whatever was in that fucking library that was burned to the ground, to a cinder, um, we'll never know again. And, and whatever we have left on, on planet Earth to draw inspiration from is there. And it's just our job as human explorers to get out there, see it, experience it. Like you're talking about instead of drowning yourself in a bottle, which I do anyway, um, you, there, you can put, you know, save up a little a decent amount of uh, money and just go and go see something and fill your head with good, healthy information that's going to inspire you to um, stay on a path that will lead you creating and, and, I don't know, leaving something behind to make the world a better place or at least inspire somebody else to do something cool too. And that's really what the journey is about, just figuring things out for yourself. And, and I love these these religions and these lures. I mean, you just if you just kind of ignore the bad shit and just kind of and, and look at some of the things that it did good in terms of giving a sense of wonder, like even Plato wrote about his own version of the creation of the universe. His book, it was called Timaeus. And this is where all these shapes come from, these platonic solids. It was one of the most beautiful and romantic fucking versions of how somebody could even think that the universe came to be through geometry and shapes and all this other crazy shit. It's probably scientifically inaccurate, but it still holds weight today because you're talking about one of the most brilliant thinkers that ever walked the planet. And ironically enough, came from a civilization that's one of my favorites. So that's why I just love going there. Um, there's so much to learn being in the cradle of Western civilization in the middle of Greece. It's just fucking fantastic. And I, I also think that that's a lot of the reason why the Greeks missed have, have withstand uh, the test of time because the Greeks gave so much to the Western world. You're talking about poetry and theater and democracy and fucking lore and all this other crazy shit, mathematics and science and philosophy. They just offered so much of the world uh, that we see today and the, and when when their empire was in its prime and i also think that that's why uh th- those myths have have survived for so long and if not some of the most popular ones 
on the scale or the hierarchy of uh, cultures and their their myths. I don't know if that if, if that whole. I know I tan, I, t- I talk a lot. I just have a lot. <laughs> That's more than fine. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. There's a lot. I, I, have a, I have so much shit to say. I don't know if you have a response to that, but. Uh, well, what's what's fascinating to me, um, just from a lover of storytelling, is you, a lot of things you're saying are very much as to why, um, and going off what uh, Jamie was saying as well, kind of a combination of the two, is why storytelling is so powerful. But it doesn't have to be, you know, a fictional thing someone's writing down. Be it looking at a lot, but looking at old civilization. Or, you know, reading a book or reading about old mythology. It works the same way the, you know, the Greeks used their beliefs, their mythology is when you sit down and you allow that lore to affect you on an existential level to enter you, then you get more, you, it just inspires you more and you allow that lore to be larger than yourself. I think it's what separates, um, religion from the for the ancients back then to a lot of particularly western religions now that though their perception is of something that's supposed to be larger than you to make you feel small um a lot of times people use that to make themselves feel bigger instead you you hit the nail on the head with that one because when you're when you go to greece and you stand on the acropolis man you just look at the fucking massive thing that these people built like you feel like a fucking god standing on one of these things it's just crazy dude it's 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 insane it's one of the most so i've I've been to quite a bit of places and that's my favorite place in the world you just stand on that mountain in the center of athens just looking down on the city right next to the parthenon and all these fucking temples and the greek flag there's just something about it that just gives you like you're saying that existential feeling of being a part of something that's totally greater than than you will ever amount to that it will be here when you're dead and gone i'm surprised that uh other civilizations that invaded greece didn't tear that fucking thing to the ground because it's such a it's such a symbol a powerful symbol of uh of the and a staple to that country it's it makes you feel like something like i I remember the first time i landed there in 2015 i almost wanted to cry seeing like the the greek uh language in the airport and all this other stuff and um just, I, I know it was a kind, of, kind of expensive, but I took a taxi from the airport all the way into the city because I wanted a personal experience. I didn't want to take an underground subway. I wanted to see the land that I've been dying to come to since I was a kid, reading about all this shit. And, uh, you know, being 29 at the time, I just fucking sat in this cabin. It was just looking over the landscapes and the mountains. And as soon as we got near the city, the, the cab driver just like pointed at the, he's a acropoli, acropoli. And I look over, I was like, holy shit, dude. Like a fucking crazy smirk came on my face. I'm like, I, I am fucking here. Like this is badass. I'm, I'm, I'm in a part of the world where lore and legend have survived thousands of fucking years where philosophy and intellect and, and science has, has, you know, influenced the world. I'm in the cradle of the, of the West. And, uh, it, it it just so happens that the people are, are so fucking cool over there that they want to teach you about the thing, the, the ancients, you know what I mean? It's just so neat, man. It's just such a, you, you're really looking for inspiration, um, at, let alone the arts, but as a person, you know, to, to really feel good about life, you should go. It's a, it's a really incredible experience just to see all this shit. And then when you're driving, like you take a bus up to Delphi where the Oracle was and you're on the, on the mountains looking over the whole landscape of the you know just outside of uh the ruins and you're you're on this 
slope going up a mountain all the ruins are up there and you you walk all the way to the top and you're standing at the fucking temple of apollo looking at this giant fucking acropolis in front of you it's just it's amazing dude and you think again this was real to these people that they they dedicated their society to the uh, the preservation of worshiping these deities um their faith built that it's solid Exactly. And, you know, the, the Temple of Apollo and all that, it's just, it's amazing, man, to be standing in something that's just like, for thousands of years, people would come to honor these gods. You get what I'm saying? It's just a fucking crazy. It's, 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 it's a surreal experience. It really is an existential experience. And to, and to think that, uh, uh, that I could even um, write, a, you know, I would use my own talent to, to, to try to, and my skill to, to try to create my own, you know, my own story around some of this, not direct interpretations of their lore, but I'm using the archetypes to, to create my own story um, around some of this stuff is just super fucking neat to me, you know, cause uh, I have a wealth, like a whole well in, in cash of, of now friends I've made over there and a country that I can always go back to, to dive into and, and get inspiration. It's just fun as fuck, man. It, it really is. And this is what I love about being an artist is you, you, you have the ability to not just dedicate yourself to one discipline, whatever, whatever is ticking around in your heart and your mind, you can completely dive into that subject wholeheartedly and just get whatever the fuck you can out of it. Um, and, and go, you know, balls to the wall and even like, like what I'm doing, taking trips to these places to be fully immersed in the environment and then come back with a wealth of knowledge and inspiration and build something so cool. And I think this is what some of the best artists do. Um, I really do. I think Guillermo del Toro's, uh, uh, the, the the filmmaker he is because of that. I think um, I think um, some of these guys um, that create some of this stuff are are the artists they are because of their experiences in that way. And again, this is I'm not boasting. I'm just objective object, objectively thinking here um, because of my experiences. And it's how they take in that inspiration too. And I think you know going back to our like almost discussion of time, the great equalizer of cosmic time is inspiration is feeding off one thing into the other because it connects us all as far back as possible just going back to the inspiration where the void comes from now lovecraft wrote about these unknown indescribable things and then del toro wanted to make this version of that that no one's ever uh, could, could even comprehend but there was no explanation as to what that was and there was no payoff so that and the fact that was indescribable and unknown yeah, that inspired want, this want, other piece of art. They want this fucking beginning, middle, and end story structure that really wouldn't fit in a Lovecraft, and they keep trying to do that. And that's why his the movies that they have made always fail, because it, a lot of that shit's up to the viewer um, to, to, to piece in. And I think that the closest thing that you'll ever get to another Lovecraft besides The Void is The Thing. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. It's, it's pretty much at the Mountains of Madness. Um, you know, it's a cosmic horror picture where you have these people that never figure out what the hell it is. Um, it kind of just goes, uh, it was in hiding for a long time. And they're just sitting there waiting to die because they have no, uh, Childs and McCready are just sitting at the end. It, it's very, it was probably the closest thing to Lovecraft that we had that was successful in the mainstream other than The Void. Um, and and you, you kind of have to be a critical thinker and, and a much more deep thinker to, to appreciate that kind of narrative. Because you, you can't just be this soda pop club uh, Boy Scout and be into that shit. It just doesn't work. Because the way, the way that a lot of this stuff, it, it inclu- the other, the only other 
type of thing that I can even think. And, and ironically enough, that project got canceled too, uh, was Sandman. Sandman is a very cosmic experience, but it was done in the form of a comic book. Neil Gaiman was a genius for writing this. Um, oh. But it was done in the form of a comic. Um, and you're following this deity, uh, this dream deity, on a journey to get his powers back through heaven and hell and all these other different realms of reality, um, and including um, uh, the reality that we live, which is planet Earth. And you're following him on this journey. And they, he even did a prequel called Overture. It was like a five-book series. I bought it immediately. Um, oh, just a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's so good. And And on top of that, they go to put the movie together, and what's that little prick? Uh, what's that little prick's name, man? I can't remember his fucking name. That little dude looks like a twelve-year-old boy. Um, that could be a lot of people. Joseph Gordon Lovett. He played Morpheus. Okay, and uh, I didn't see it, but I was willing. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's see what he does. He's a pretty good actor. I don't really see him as Morpheus. Morpheus has the long face and the big hair, and he's like dark looking. And that dude looks like a fucking ten-year-old kid. But he was in charge of the project, and he was working with Gaiman on it. And the interview that the only interview that uh, Joseph Gordon Lovett put out on it when they asked him about it before it got canceled was he's like, this isn't going to be some action packed movie. This is going to be a very different type of movie. There's going to be action, but it's not going to be what you're normally into. And guess what? Six months later, boom, done, gone. Yeah. And you know, it's like you can't put that kind of shit in the mainstream. Now, going back to what you were saying before about the the idea of characters changing. I don't really think that the the characters in the art or the stories that we tell as human beings need to change. I think what needs to change is the mentality and what people are willing to accept as uh, storytelling. And I think a lot of this just has to do with intellect and knowledge. Like you have a lot of people that are more focused on the Kardashians and American Idol, and those are the kind of people that have made nerd culture huge. Because they don't necessarily care about comics or anything. They just want to see Groot run around and say, I am Groot. And that gets their fucking rocks off. Like you, There's no sense of depth to those type of people. And that's why you'll never see um, – that's why you'll probably never see Guillermo del Toro, a, 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 a notoriously amazing artist, make a Lovecraft in the mainstream. It just won't work uh, because people aren't ready for it and they may never be ready for that kind of art. And this is why I never brought it to burden myself with uh, you know, being – in the comic scene or never being kind of my artwork, never really being accepted in getting types of jobs in the industry or never even winning awards with my books because I'm not making the kind of art that those motherfuckers want to see anyway. You, my, I'm going to have a very specific type of audience that's going to be very much into anthropology and fantasy and lore in a sense like a Poe or a Lovecraft in, a, in that way. Not to say, again, I'm not boasting. I'm not saying that I'm on the level with these guys. I'm just saying that I'm more akin to those type of artists that will that will never probably be in the mainstream than as to someone that will write um a pop culture book that was perfectly fine i'm not bashing them for it but that will sell a million copies the day it releases it's just not uh it's not the kind of shit that i wanted to do um when i when i got into started making connections at dark horse i started to show my work they really liked the stuff i was doing but they wanted me to paint big tits and robots and i'm like i i didn't bust my ass for 10 years to to just do that shit dude like i don't I, you put me on the silent hill project i'll bust out some really badass shit for that well we got these guys for that like, all right cool well i don't want to paint all that other bullshit it's just not what i want to do I, I worked my ass off um to expand my mind to grow my heart and my my skills to do something that i felt you know was meaningful to me and can leave somewhat of a decent mark on the world. I don't want to contribute to the mass uh, dumbing down of the, the population. And again, I'm not saying that I don't enjoy um, 
good pop culture. I, I enjoy it like as much as the next fucking uh, guy. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing with my girlfriend to go see fucking Ragnarok Thor. I want to enjoy it, but that's not the kind of artwork I want to make personally. I don't. I don't know if that makes sense. So I don't really necessarily think that that um, people, uh, the characters and stories need to change. I just think that people need to fucking grow up a little bit and um, get a little bit more experience under their belt before we can start getting things like The Void or H.P. Lovecraft. And where we have more people listening to dialogues like this and, and dissecting this kind of entertainment and this kind of art that really does change the mindset of, um, you know, be, uh, of, of mankind. Because, you know, people that artists that make really interesting stuff it's always this stereotype that uh, they're never really appreciated until they're dead um because it has taken a while for the 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 collective consciousness to grow to the level that that motherfucker was at. i think edgar Allan poe was dead three years before anybody gave a fuck about the guy that's crazy he was just dead and buried and somebody picked up the telltale heart and go and holy fuck this is a masterpiece you know what i mean that's just crazy so um it really takes the world time to catch up to somebody that's uh uh that's truly in tune with the world around them and in pumping out uh really amazing work i think um i think lovecraft his his work didn't take off i mean i know he had a, a cult following in his day he oh, used to yeah, write, but he died broke he died young he died in his 40s from some stomach illness or some shit yeah yeah and uh, it took a while for his shit to take off. Um, it just takes a while for the collective consciousness to catch up to the, the genius of something like a Lovecraft. Um, I don't know. It's just a very interesting. It's a very interesting thing. And and I think that the entertainment industry is is it's there for one thing, and that's just there to entertain. It, it, it's it's like what you say about drinking a, a bottle of wine at the end of the night. That's mostly what people use it for, as a kind of a sense of substance abuse in a way to to get out of the fact that they just work nine ten hours and. You know, they're busting their ass and that's totally fine man people work hard they want something to enjoy and they don't want to they want to shut off for a while but yeah and i don't i don't want to sound like like a selfish guy but because i'm in this 100 i i'm i was always looking for something a little bit more and and that's why i've spent the, my life traveling and seeing things and growing my work in that way and the more i travel the more i grow in, in the mind and the heart um it, i feel more alone because the 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 more you grow in your mind, the less people you have to relate to. And I think that uh, it, it, it makes me – I have like a Dr. Manhattan complex. I'm like drifting away from reality because I, I'm, I'm seeing more things and I'm experiencing more things than my friends can fucking relate to. So I end up spending more time alone writing, these ma writing all this madness. I'm actually writing a horror book myself, which I don't want to talk about too much because it's, it's probably my, my best work yet. But um, I, um, I, I sit here and I look at this book. And it's done. And I wrote this a several, a couple of years back, but I wanted to do the zero mirror first. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, how the fuck could I write? I couldn't write this now. I'm a little bit more content and self-aware. I could never write this book now. I wrote this at a, at a kind of a dark time in my life. And uh, I read it. I, I've, I had a couple people, close friends of mine that I've read too. And it's like, I really, I, it's, it sounds amazing. It sounds cool, but I really don't understand the experiences that you're going through because again, there's a lack thereof. So, um, the more that I, I spend time developing my work and developing myself as an artist, uh, it, 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 one, becomes more of a lonely journey. Two, it, it becomes harder to relate to, to people um, in, a, in that kind of thing. So when I see people like Guillermo del Toro getting canned from doing projects like this, or, or the fact, going back to Alien Covenant, 
that the alien that this whole Prometheus was supposed to be a trilogy, and the and the sequel yeah. was called Paradise, and they were supposed to uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Ridley Scott was supposed to make the engineers' world very Lovecraftian, like after yeah. the after the fucking Cthulhu monolith came out of the ocean. Um, when the when the observer was talking about how he couldn't identify the architecture was because it was shit you've never seen before in your life. No perspective. Everything didn't lead to any kind of point of perspective. That was the way they were going to make the engineers' world. But again, it didn't. Everyone bitched about it in the mainstream because they're tools and they're uneducated and they didn't like really. They didn't understand Prometheus, um, of which I don't understand how you couldn't if you just paid attention. Um, it goes back to what somebody was saying about being spoon-fed on shovel all this garbage in horror movies. So they didn't like it. They bitched about it. And then it got passed off to that dude who did District 9. Then he fucking failed because he didn't want to do it. And then he took it back and it went through so many re-edits. And then we got handed this piece of shit called Alien Covenant um, where David shows up and just fucking nukes everybody in the engineer world. And that's what the fuck we wanted to see. We wanted to see the engineer's world. We wanted to see this ancient race of fucking creatures that created humans. I didn't give a fuck about David creating xenomorphs. We've already seen this movie. The last 30 minutes of the movie is xenomorph chasing everyone down and eating everyone alive. We've seen that shit a hundred times. With no already. plot. With just, no plot. And, and Ridley Scott just going, fine, here, you want this? You wanted and this then, the entire time? Fine. So he had the opportunity to get handed a, a fucking brilliant masterpiece of a trilogy of something that we've never seen before. A brand new story with a brand new set of creatures and a brand new lore. Of a, a, a in the mainstream, and all the fucking sheep complained, and then we got handed the same shit, and then they loved it. They ate it up. They thought it was fucking uh, uh, cheesecake with fucking raspberry cream, dude. It was fucking upsetting and disappointing. So I waited five years for this fucking sequel to come out to something that really I felt was unique. You know, you had all these ancient cultures talking about fucking visitors from space, the whole ancient aliens theory and all that stuff, and they made this movie Prometheus. It's like cool. We're gonna actually go to a new creature in this universe and see their fucking home world can you imagine what that would have looked like uh, with all the ancient knowledge and all that frequency and bullshit that were showing in prometheus I, my head was fucking spinning i was looking up all kinds of fan fiction and whatnot on the internet to, and i just heard this theory that they were talking about making it called paradise and it was going to be all this lovecraft type shit i'm like man this is going to be fucking incredible i can't wait for this and then it finally came out and it's like that's what the fans got exactly what the fuck the fans wanted and like I said, it's it's not the characters that need to change. I can guarantee you that Guillermo del Toro and Ridley Scott are capable of doing fucking incredible stuff. Like, um, what's this guy? Terry Gilliam does some really interesting stuff. But they know that they have to do shit that does, that, that, that's going to sell to these fools and that the producers are going to want to get a dime from. So it's the people that, again, have to evolve to um, – to the level of their 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 mind to be able to accept different things instead of just being handed another Spider-Man remake or another origin story or oh my God they're gonna remake the Crow oh my God Ghostbusters being remade give me a break we'll see like, if we ever get that Crow remake they've been threatening that for a <laughs> long time but do you see what I'm saying it's a oh, joke yeah, of this, course like yeah. it's such a joke I and, think the best uh, way I've ever heard it described was uh, basically entertainment exists on a plane with the end post being pornography on one end and art being the other. Uh, pornography not just being like, actual porn, but the idea that this is something designed entirely as entertainment. It's just something to pop on, you forget about it instantly. As soon as it's done, it's just a visceral, cool, fun, quick experience that wasted 20 minutes of your time or whatever. Art, That's on the good. other hand, being, yeah. And art, on the other hand, being like the most pure distillation of something with meaning. 
but it's so dense that no one could ever get into it besides the creator. It doesn't have outside meaning. So well, you have a, to somehow a, slide along there to where you get enough porn in your art that it still has meaning, but it's accessible and other people would want to watch it. Yeah, exactly. It still has to be titillating. Yeah, they, they, you know, you got to get some titties in there. You look at all, you know, you got to get some titties. You got to get some fucking monsters. And you got, you know, you got to throw that in there. It's it's just the same old bullshit. And uh, I've become tired. And again, this is why I've been so very much against uh, this this lackluster desire to to ever get my shit judged or ever submit a book for a fucking uh, review. I just don't care. Like I, it's again, it's not even, I'm more in it to, to write good stories and develop myself and to be a better artist, to, to try to make um, the best stories I can and to be a better artist and a better thinker, to try to come up with truly unique things and, and, and go on this journey throughout the diff- these different places. Uh, um, and even going through Romania uh, on this little, 12 day trip, just backpacking through Wallachia and Transylvania to see all of Vlad's castles. Like this, seeing all his castles and being in the presence of uh, high up in the Wallachian mountains in his, his main uh, castle, Polionari, which is in ruins now, but it's still fucking dope to go see. It gave me everything I needed. And I didn't even know I was going to fucking in, in, endure this experience, but it gave me everything I needed to understand the villain in the Zero Mirror. And I would have never found that inspiration for that character. I had no idea I was even walking into that unless I went there. And I was just going there to, to, to fill up a sketchbook of a, of a childhood thing. I was always obsessed with Vlad the Impaler. Um, and I wanted to go check out his fucking castles and see Romania. It's just something that's always been on my mind since I was a kid. Uh, and fucking uh, looking at the faces of horror, Elizabeth Bathory and all that shit. I was a pretty dark motherfucker when I was younger. Um, <laughs> so when I got there, it gave me this sense. I was like, dude, this is exactly... And I just it just clicked, and I was in his cabin like this is exactly how I'm making my 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 villain Potentia in the Zero Mirror. This is exactly how how what he's gonna be. And uh, I came back and I started cranking and I got heavy into doing concepts and and making paintings of this character. So little by little, this 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 lore and this mythology is coming together uh, based on these things that the the way that I experience things. I'm I'm in this to make good art. Um, I'm not in this to, to be a pop culture master and, and get all kinds of press and shit. I could give a fuck about all that. It just so happens that I'm in the scene because I'm an artist in the pop culture scene. And again, I like pop culture. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, uh, the next Avengers movie. I think it's fun as fuck to watch, but it's never something I would reference to make my art. You you see what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I do think there's something interesting in there though, at least in my feelings on art. I, I, you know, it's 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 fine whenever anybody wants to just turn their brain off and, you know, after a long week and just watch a movie or watch the newest blockbuster or just kind of veg out a little bit. We need I, that. I think we all do that. That's it. It's like, cool. That's that's fun. That's kind of almost, in, you know, in a way, the beauty of art it can work both ways, but it can work both ways. And I think there is a rejection of in, in intellectualism in that, you know, fuck, a Saturday morning cartoon can inspire you or get something going in your brain can bring you can bring a fucking tear to your eye but you have to open your mind to that concept you have to allow that another piece of art to breathe you be it a piece of art be it a piece of architecture i was in i was just walking around my neighborhood the other morning i was looking at cracks in a fucking sidewalk and i was thinking like my neighborhood was built in the in the 60s and I, I started going back to like, okay, this is when you know some somebody was laying the concrete for the sidewalk. 
And then this is everything that's happened to it since then cracked this sidewalk, be it weather or stress, people walking on all, all the people who've ever walked on this. And it also all goes back to the moment that fucking person laid that sidewalk down and laid that concrete down. And I thought like the concrete was, you know, shipped here from somewhere else. It, it, or even when you enjoy a good meal, like enjoy a fresh meal. Think about all the places that food came from, all the farmers that grew it, everything else. When You can experience so much from, you can watch a shitty fucking transporter sequel and you can get something Did you say from some people. Transporter pe- sequel with Jason Statham? I Holy did. It could be the Ed Screen remake. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I was just like, I haven't heard anybody reference that movie in years, dude. I don't know why my mind went there, but um, but you can even grab a piece of iconography from that, you know, him, him in a fucking black suit, and something will fire off in your mind. That has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with anything in that. You know, I, I've been in, I've, I found inspiration ex- reading a book or watching, you know, watching a documentary and seeing a dark hallway and going, oh, my mind goes here and here and here and here. My mind's suddenly now, like, in a plague town somewhere. And there, there's this story unfolding, and where the fuck did that come from? The problem is, like, you, you, it's, it's like with most things in life. You have to enjoy things in moderation. If you want to enjoy things mindlessly, it's all in moderation. But you have to let that shit. You have to let your mind unfold. Our minds are complicated fucking machines. Let it unfold, because your consciousness and your unconsciousness will go any number of fucking places. So the the story that I'm writing, the Zero Mirror Project, um, it's basically um, it's basically like this. And I, I don't know if I what you wanted to hear anything about it, but you start out with Pluto on his moon. He's having this inner dialogue, and he's just standing there. And they're all represented by obviously human figures. And um, it, he's standing on his moon, and he's having this inner dialogue with himself, you know, questioning where his fucking moon went. So he goes to First Father, which is Apollo, and asks him for permission to go through the Zero Mirror. And there's this whole backstory of why Apollo locked the Zero Mirror off and created the Minotaur to block anybody from going in or anybody from leaving uh, who was in there. And I get into the backstory of why that is and and what happened. Um, So there were these three gods that created the Zero Mirror, uh, Apollo, Genova, and Potentia, Apollo's brother. And um, they, they kind of got restless and they, they just didn't – they got tired of the order. They, got, they wanted to f- just see and, and think about something different and feel something different. So they, they set in motion this – to design this labyrinth and go inside and to, to be able to exist in a playground that they can create um, in their own image. And instead of just being kind of like a dream in, in Sandman or Desire, they're just – they are what they are and that's all they are. They keep order. So they wanted to kind of create a world that they could actually manipulate and, and see what would happen with a little bit of chaos uh, and a lack of order. And they go in there and enter the Greek tragedy aspect of it. Once they do this, Genova creates the, the passing through the zero mirror, which is the Genova clutch, and it connects the biology to the human con- uh, to the God consciousness, and you're in kind of like a tangible world at this point. And once they go in there, they start feeling these types of human emotions. It's kind of like a blank slate, um, like a white slate. And they just start creating images in life. And I had a dream about what it would be like uh, the other day. And I, I just kind of saw like grassy plains and these floating crystals. 
just like these crystal shards levitating right above the grassy plains. And um, they started feeling these different things that they've never felt before. So Potentia and Genova fall in love and they have sex and Apollo finds out and he goes through and he starts feeling things he's never felt before, anger and wrath. And they just, this massive fucking battle kicks in and they just start creating all this wild shit that they never were able to create before. And they end up building these creatures and armies and whatnot. And um, so he locks the fucking zero mirror up and seals them inside and thousands and thousands of years go by and Pluto's moon is missing and he wants to go in because he thinks it got sucked in. So he uh, asked for permission to go through the zero mirror and he's like, okay, if this is what you want to do, I'm, I, I kind of tied in a, a Neil deGrasse Tyson thing here. They renounce his, uh, his status as, the, as Pluto. <laughs> um, <laughs> as, so he's renounced as this, this uh, entity and he's kind of like uh, known as um, uh, Pluto becomes an underworld, the planet. And he has a familiar in the story and it's a wolf and his wolf's name is Lupo. Uh, and that's Italian for wolf. So he goes through, they give him this, they revoke his godlike status. And uh, he goes to Saturn, walks him to the zero mirror. And they have this whole conversation about uh, why first father is in so much more in love with Pluto and, and all these different things. And he goes through the zero mirror and then he encounters, he actually enters this different state of being. And the and next thing you see is this fucking gigantic minotaur just peeling through this. Think about that scene in uh, in Legend with that fucking beast, uh, Tim Curry just, you know, kind of stepping through that portal. That's kind of how I saw this. And then he, he had this little dialogue and then he gives them these 10 trials, kind of similar to the trials of Hercules. You know, you got the labors of Hercules. It's kind of like uh, what I'm using there. So he sends them on his first trial, which is to go to the ass end of the universe and find this planet called Meteora and steal the wings of Icarus from the Icarus creature. Now they think it's a myth, like this creature doesn't exist. It's not real, right? How can that possibly be real? So um, where I came up with this planet was I was actually in Greece, and there's a land called uh, Meteora with these ancient geological rocks. And in Greek, Meteora means suspended in air. So you have these massive pillars just towering into the sky, and at the top of these fucking pillars, there's these monasteries that the monks would, would pray in. And I thought this would be so fucking cool to have, like, I'm looking at this thing, these landscapes when I was there last uh, couple years ago, and I'm thinking... This would be so cool if there was a giant fucking condor that just fucking came out of the sky and just landed its talons right on these big ass pillars. I'm like, that's it. This will be the fucking homeworld of Icarus. And he's the only fucking thing that resides. This is his planet. Um, and I'll call it Meteora. So he goes to this planet, Meteora, to find Icarus to steal his wings. And they get into a conversation about it. And uh, he ends up completing his first trial. I don't really want to tell you how. And uh, then there's a second trial, which is. Um, um, based on creatures that I created called tetrahedral. So these, these druids that control and track time. And they have this hourglass that is the embodiment of all time. Um, and they are pretty much the masters of time in this universe that I've created. So he, there's these creatures in the universe that are wanting to absorb these elements from this planet called Atlas where these druids live. So Pluto's second trial is to go and... Uh, stop this invasion on planet atlas and bring the minotaur the hourglass the ancient hourglass artifact so it goes on and on and on until the last trial i really don't want to tell you what the last trial is because it's kind of a cool thing that happens you got to so save I, something for get people on the yeah. line give them to buy so there's those are the two those are the two first trials and again i the, the way that you see that this coming down is i wanted to create an adventure story i wanted to create a fantasy using the lore that i like and 
and incorporate some of the things that I go through. And just the way I write the dialogue about Pluto seeing Icarus uh, for the first time. Um, Icarus in my story is half condor, half man. I've always uh, been fond of condor as an extinct bird. And I thought that would mean a lot if we had just one of these, this, this one of these creatures living on this planet. Um, and there, he's fucking 15, 20 times the size of an, of an average god in this story. You look at those Egyptian um, scale figured scales on their ruins out there and you have like the three-step fucking scale you look at the smallest one as like a god and the biggest one is like icarus in my story so the way he's describing how fucking slow his gigantic wings flap um and how he's counting every heartbeat that he has until they complete one full fucking cycle um that's just to illustrate the massive size of this thing so that's really the way the writing is going it's very detailed if you look at lovecraft and how descriptive that dude would get into and get lost into that kind of stuff you'll see a lot of that influence but you'll see a lot of it it's a lot more emotive than just dry adjectives um that that lovecraft would write about cuz you could get bored with some of the shit he would write he would it's like okay dude i get it like let's you get what i'm saying like it's he could be a you, tough read it was oh, could, yeah. definitely a mouthful because you'd have to like, you have to be fully focused. And then sometimes when I read his stuff, I had to go back and reread what the fuck I wrote because my mind would start wandering. So it, mine is definitely a little bit more emotive when I get into the detail. So um, half of the book is already written. It, it pretty much goes from the moment that Pluto finds out that his moon is gone and he's, he goes on this journey to find his orbiting moon, his love. And half of the book ends at the end of the last trial with the Minotaur. So... um use a lot of the Greek mythology, invented some of my own. So I don't know what you think about it so far, but that is basically the premise. And I really don't have any any problem saying this because it's I have a whole Patreon account dedicated to it and I've been talking about it on Twitch. So, um, you know, like I said, if you're interested, I'll come back after Greece and we'll do another talk and I'll tell you everything that I was learning and the kind of directions I'm thinking about going with the project from there. Yeah, that'd Bro, be we'd fantastic. love to have you back. Yeah. yeah. Oh, definitely, and, uh, definitely. And zero mirror, just I'm fucking. That sounds so fucking amazing. I I I'm in love with everything you just said. That's incredible. Do you think it, you like it? You like uh you like the direction so far? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. And and just as a even outside of being a a mythology fan and a Greek mythology um lover, that's just it's incredible. And the uh, the world building you you've done there is just it's. It sounds next level, honestly. It sounds like just like the type of stuff where you just like you sit back and all. It's like, okay, this is sort of you imagine these same sort of building blocks for like, and I don't, I do not want to compare you to like other bigger writers or anything like that. I don't want to put that on your shoulders, but like, it sounds like this sort of mindset you, that you get into that leads to something like something like Alan Moore would do or something like. I, I love. Know, like a Neil Gaiman or something like that. It's like, that sounds just so insanely cool and so insanely just out there in the best possible way. Well, I'm, I'm happy that, that it kind of gives you that reaction just with a little bit of, of narrative that you've learned about it. Because again, I've, I've spent the last couple of years really just taking my time with this because, um, the, the, the Wooden Heart took me about four years to put together. One, because it was hard to go back to some of those dark places that I really didn't want to venture into. But two, because I really didn't know dick about writing a comic. And I learned a lot about that. And my biggest lesson from that book was to get out of my own head in my own bubble. And if I really wanted to be a storyteller, then I have to give the viewer a story that they can follow. And um, the biggest lesson about telling stories 
um, is this one. Uh, you have to keep your character in conflict because it's going to keep the it's going to keep the viewer their ass seated and wondering if your main character is going to succeed or if he's going to fail. And that's a big that's it, it took fucking year. I'm 31. It took over 10 years to learn that lesson. And this is full time con continuous reading and just reading and, and traveling and trying to explore. So with the zero mirror uh, after Pinocchio, I knew I wanted to write something that that made me happy that that went into a place that I like like you, like I made the super metroid reference the metroid prime reference when you're you're kind of on this journey you're excavating these worlds and you're finding these artifacts and you're experiencing these ancient cultures similar to kind of how I I put my artwork together by going to these places and having an experience a real genuine emotional and and visual experience um and then trying to translate that or transcend that into writing and imagery to tell a story. Um, and I knew that's the direction I wanted to go in. Now, if it's going to be successful or not, I have no fucking clue. Cause this is my first attempt at it. This is my second project, but, um, that's why I took my time with it because I, I, I wanted to be, I didn't want to make mistakes by sitting on decisions too long and never getting anything done. So at a certain point, I'll just make a decision and move with it. But I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just making snap judgments. Kind of like what I was doing with, uh, like when I told you to truly understand the villain character, it just kind of happened randomly when I was fucking in Dracula's castle in Romania. It's just a really random thing. And now I know for a certainty that that is the way I want to take his character. So I just want to be sure that I know that everything in this story is exactly, um, it, it, it was not a second guess whether or not it's going to be fun for people to read. And yeah, I always have to ask myself this question. Would I read this? Would I read this? Um, go back to the things I liked in my childhood that really made me want to get into art, video games and stuff like that. The things that really set me on adventures, um, whether it's, you know, you go on these adventures and when I was a kid with Donkey Kong and all this kind of shit, Super Mario Brothers, these little, these little Final Fantasy, another one, really, you go on these adventures, finding, meeting characters and finding weapons and, and earning power and stuff like that and leveling up. Final Fantasy VII was a great one for me. Oh, um, so, that, and this is the kind of thing that I wanted to to do is write a deep adventure about a character that is having these experiences throughout this grand universe and seeing things he's he never thought he would ever see all by the motive of trying to find his love his his orbiting moon that just got sent out of orbit um now it did it go through the zero mirror or not i guess we'll have to find out but um it he's doing a hell of a lot of shit to to try to get through that fucking portal and um i think that uh i think it's probably the work that i'm doing for this as of right now i know i mentioned the horror book but this is some of the coolest shit that i've ever made i, I can I, i'll say that about my own self you have to see this now when i, I mentioned the second trial going to planet atlas and 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 bringing back the tetrahedral hourglass i actually built it it's about two foot tall and a foot wide and, awesome uh, i made it out of glass and i made ev both sides of the hourglass actual tetrahedral triangles so if you look at the, the portal in the void those tetrahedrals each side of the hourglass looks like that so i spent fucking weeks cutting out glass and drilling holes in it and bolting this fucking hourglass together and then burning all the symbols of all the planets into the side of the hour you can see it on my facebook there's a whole album of it oh perfect. Um, i was gonna ask if it's up on your personal site or if it's on your facebook yeah well you know what You'll, you'll be able to see it quicker if you go to uh, theartofcjdrayton.com and click on, uh, and click on uh, I think it's under Zero Mirror, one of those tabs. If not, you can. there's an album on my Facebook for it. Um, 
so yeah and, and now and just and that another thing being said if you go to my, my website the rcj drayden talking about pinocchio and the idea of, of of building narratives based on excavation and shit like that i built this pinocchio that i had which is five feet tall of all these tattered raw materials and shit pieced together like a fucking frankenstein and uh, it was my vision of Pinocchio, and it was this really dark, fucked up looking thing made with metal and wood. It's um, Frankenstein's a good way to describe it. I looked at the pictures, and that was the first thing that came to mind, man. Oh, you, you saw it? You saw the Pinocchio already? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's that thing uh, is gorgeously. But I've never seen something be that horrible and beautiful at the same time in terms of something made of wood. I was in a very dark place at that time, <laughs> yeah, but you know what I had, and it, that took me several years to make too, because every piece on that thing had to be right. I didn't want to make anything. I didn't want to buy anything for it. I wanted to piece this thing like a mosaic, like as if you were in this, like this little villa in Italy and some dude was actually building a child. I would like, and, and thinking that this thing could come to real life by a fairy giving it a soul. I wanted to make it look like this would be the real interpretation of what that fucker would make. And I wanted to make it look like it was an artifact that you found in this guy's house. Again, the whole excavation thing. Um, so if you, I think there's photos of the hourglass up there too. I made that. And I'm making all the elements from Planet Atlas as well. Because I like this idea of bringing something out of the story that I'm making. Because it gives it that much more life. It makes it so much more real. Now it's not just a story. There's these fucking tangible artifacts that came from it. You can walk around it and see it and like, holy shit, this is from Planet Atlas. Holy shit, this is Pinocchio. This is a real Pinocchio. The thing's five foot tall. So um, there's, a, there's a lot that I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get done. Basically, the book is half done. Um, I'm at this point where I have no fucking clue what is going to happen once he passes through the zero mirror. I don't, I don't know what the world's going to look like. I have no idea what he's going to experience. I have ideas. I have sketchbook full of con uh, concepts and ideas, but the, that is really what's going to make this make or break this story. That what you what I talked about the trials of being able to pass with the zero mirror. That's just the first step. The second step is being as, able. As you're working on this, uh, you also do your live streams. Are you actually working on the zero mirror on those sessions? Yeah, that's actually part of like, uh, that's why I, I am actually using my Patreon and my Twitch backwards compatibility. Like I'll, I'll do all the process work and do all the, the art pledges and, and all the rewards through Patreon and do all the process work on Patreon. And then when I'm ready to actually create the, the final pieces for the book, I'll do them live for people to watch on Twitch. Great. And you're, uh, you're trying to work on a schedule for that, right? You're like a, what'd you say, a Tuesday, Friday? Or do I have that totally wrong? <laughs> Twitch is Monday, Friday at 9 p.m. It's been that way for the last uh, – well, I had it on Tuesdays, and then I changed it to the middle of the summer because it worked out better Mondays and Fridays at gotcha. 9 o'clock. And people, now, the, people the can find you on there at uh, – that's go.twitch.tv slash Drayden, correct? Oh, it's just twitch.tv backslash cjdrayden. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. I almost had that right. So close. Now, the last couple of streams have mostly been commissions because I've been fucking balls deep in work, and I needed to get that stuff done. Um, and I wasn't totally ready to just – again, I had to take some time off of Twitch to get ready for New York Comic Con. That's a massive event. It takes months to get ready for. Um, so I, 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 I took a look at my process book for the Zero Mirror, and I just completely um, – my notes are so insane. I, and I was looking at some of the sketches, and it was going to take me a minute to just analyze this and figure out the state of mind that it was in and where I left off. So I just used my Twitch streams the past couple of weeks to get some commissions done. I didn't want to rush back into a project that's kind of like – the heart and soul of 
my being right now. <laughs> um, well, understandable. A lot of lot of food on the plate still to go through. But I hope I hope it was. I hope you like what you're hearing in the direction. I hope you want to see more because this is something I've put a lot of time and thought into. Um, it um, it's it's again it's to make things seem so natural. It just takes a lot of practice. And it's um, it's a, because it's you funny know, how that works, isn't it? Like it seems like it should be natural. It should be naturally coming to you, but no, that's the hardest shit to make it look like it's after not forced. Years and years and years of training. Like some people will just see me bust shit out of the show. It's like, how the fuck do you make that look so easy? It's like ten years of of fucking putting razors on the glass, man. This is not. This is I didn't just fucking come out of the womb, you know, painting. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to Dan Brown talk, and the reason why I like Dan Brown, the author of Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. Is because he he kind of gets into these these really interesting cultural anthropological conspiratorial type stories too, and um, he had he's kind of on a on a similar journey. If you look at his Facebook, he's more of a Boy Scout. I'm not that fucking clean cut. That guy doesn't like. I I I, I openly fucking drink whiskey and smoke cigarettes. I don't give a fuck, dude. I am like, I am so. Uh, what's that dude? Um, uh, Hunter S. Thompson, dude. That's who I am. Um, <laughs> But he's so much clean cut, but he's kind of on a similar journey where he'll post things on Facebook talking about where he's going, what's drawing inspiration for his, his next book and these different cultures that he's seeing or where he's at in the world and the kind of places that he's going to and giving people vlogs of what he's doing. And I always thought that was unique. Um, and he gave an interview one time and I'll never forget this. It was another great lesson of storytelling by a master at this point, well, a, 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 a commercial multimillionaire master writer. This guy uh, said... You can take um, – you, you, as long as you know how you want your stories to begin and how you want your stories to end, you can fucking go in a million different directions. The key isn't the beginning or the end. It's your personal journey of connecting the dots to getting beginning to end. And you can take any decision you want to go. And those dots the, – the dots connecting that is entirely up to you. It's just up to – you really have to decide how you want to handle how your character progresses. So he's talking about Robert Langdon and the Da Vinci Code and how he wanted to get from point A to point B in this whole journey of this character that Tom Hanks plays. Um, he goes through a lot of different the, – the, the, the chaos of what that guy must have to go through because of all the knowledge and, and art and the shit that this guy's researching to write his books, it must just be a nightmare. You know what I mean? Like uh, to write something like the Da Vinci Code, all these paintings and all this shit, all this religious shit he writes about, all this conspiratorial Illuminati bullshit he writes about. It must be a nightmare to go through all of this ancient history to figure out what kind of journey you want your character Robert Langdon to go on. And, and it really um, it, 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 it really kind of gave me a sense of, of uh, like almost like a sense of um, uh, happiness, but sadness, too, because it was like. Fuck, I have been so in control of what my, my character Pluto does in this universe I'm building, but shit, there's a massive universe out there. Where the fuck am I going to have him go? Then you just have to narrow it down. What are you passionate about? What are you seeing? And, and, and just take your time with it. Like, you know, again, when I went to Meteora, I just kind of knew. I just, in my imagination, what if a giant fucking condor, like the size of uh, a, a small city, uh, just landed right on these rocks with its massive talents? I was like, dude, that is in my head right now. That is Icarus. That's exactly what Icarus is going to be. This massive fucking creature that just you, you could breathe, exhale and inhale four times before that thing completes a wing flap cycle. That's the kind of sheer uh, size that I would love this thing to to land on these giant rocks. And um, it just takes time. 
and to, to put your, your mind in the, in the state of mind to create those kind of things. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm looking very much forward to going back and seeing after two years of study and, and, and creating art and doing all these different things for this project, the Zero Mirror, where my mind will be and what I'm going to feel and think about when I'm sitting at the Acropolis or at the Temple of Poseidon or if I make it down to Crete and, and go see the labyrinth. I'm just so anxious to just let my mind fucking roam again. It's just going to be the coolest thing in the world, man. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see how you put all those dots together. Uh, you're going to have to come back, keep us updated. I want to hear more about this as it comes together. Uh, if you guys at home want to check out more of CJ's work, go to his Patreon page, uh, CJ Drayden. Uh, you can go to his Twitch stream or his personal website, theartofcjdrayden.com. Uh, you can see some examples of the work he's done, actually on glass, which is fascinating to me. I didn't realize that was a medium. Oh, people. I didn't even mention that. I didn't even think to mention that all my stuff. I, I think I dropped it in there as a bomb once with razors and glass. Yeah, I paint on glass with razor blades and all kinds of different like tools that I make. It's it awesome. looks fucking it's awesome shit. Yeah, you guys are going to love it. You have to check it out. It's all on his website. He does commissions too, so if you really want a piece, there you go. Although it sounds like you're pretty busy at the time. I don't know if I'm hurting you with a workload. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that has been Box Office Pulp. Uh, thanks again, CJ, for joining us tonight. I'm, uh, I'm extremely grateful to be on, man. I'm, I'm happy that we we got to get this in uh, before I left. I, I, I just thought it would be cool to do one before we left and like come back and we can talk about, um, make another segment of what uh, finishing up this conversation after, after I come back. Yeah, yeah I'm really excited. excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, everybody. That's Box Office Pulp, and that's a wrap. And customary to our show, this is a point where I normally say something stupid that makes our post credit stinger, but, uh... <laughs> nah, this episode nah. is too prestigious. Too is prestigious. Too prestigious. Is it still recording? Yeah. We normally let them run for a couple minutes in case someone accidentally says something really funny. Oh, okay, it, gotcha, gotcha. it occasionally happens. Well, Mike, okay. man, I appreciate you reaching out to me about this. I, what, you have to remind me, where the hell did we meet again? I've, I've had so much shit in my mind the, the last couple well, days. Uh, Baltimore Comic Con. I, That's uh, right. I bought that uh, pinhead off of you. We talked about the we ended up talking about Clive Barker for a while and Void. Right. And... Did I tell you I met him once and he was talking about doing an animation together? What? Oh, shit. Really? <laughs> no, uh, actually, you didn't mention this at all. Yeah, I uh, I uh, met him in Orlando, Florida, and uh, it was a very random coincidence because at the time I had no fucking idea who I was even talking to. <laughs> and um, the guy just walked up to the table and he's like, this is quite interesting. And it, it was a handicapped man and he was with his daughter. Um, I guess it was a stepdaughter because, uh, or I could be his daughter, but she was black and I didn't put two and two together. That it, uh, so anyway, she comes up to the table. She's like, Hey, listen, um, my father would like to, to talk with you about this. And I was like, yeah, come on. Sure. I'd love to talk to you guys about my artwork. Um, so she starts talking to me about this and I start getting into that whole trade and mentality. And, um, I'm just fucking going psychotic and, 
and getting heavy into detail. And he shows up and he's right in the middle of a conversation I was having with his daughter. And, um, and uh, we just fucking started talking for 45 minutes. And it was really sad because it looked like he was paralyzed at, in one of his arms. He couldn't raise his fucking arm to shake my hand. And then he drops the bomb 45 minutes in the conversation. He says in a really weird English accent, yeah, this is really cool stuff. And, um, well, I just, you know, I'm Clive Barker. And it was just like, (laughs) (laughs) you got to start with that. You can't like bury the lead 45 minutes into the conversation. But it was weird because I was so confident and smooth and talking. I was just bullshitting with these two people about my artwork. Um, and then he says that, and then I was kind of like, oh, is, uh, so he yeah. noticed he had to knock you down. A and then I just fucking didn't know what to say. And I was like, man, I can't even fucking believe you're over here. He's <laughs> like, well, I'd like to keep in touch. I would like to, I'm starting to get into animation. And I think this would just be so cool to get into animation. I've never quite seen anything like this before. I'm like, fuck yeah. Uh, this would be amazing. <laughs> sure thing, Mr. Barker. Anything you say, sir. But uh, it was kind of sad because. He looked like he was on his way out. Like he yeah, just he's, like- he's had a lot of uh, pretty bad health issues the last few years. But from my understanding, I mean, obviously, I don't know the guy firsthand. He's doing better now. I think he's been doing better. Well, I kept in touch yeah. with his daughter. And uh, what she he, he gave me his email. And I kept in touch with his daughter. And she's been super cool about letting me know what the hell was going on. And eventually, the communication just broke off because I guess he got into some fucking scandal with one of his partners and... And he was getting sued for giving the guy HIV or some shit. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you heard no. about this, but it was, all, it was all over the news. Like, uh, so I just kind of let it go at one point. Um, so he emailed me. Um, he just said, hey, listen, it was great to meet you. And uh, hopefully we can fucking talk about doing some work together. And that was, that was fucking back in 2011. And I think I had a couple of email, emails back and forth with his daughter um, from there. But other than that. Uh, nothing ever came of it, but just the, the, the idea that, uh, this guy stopped and looked at my shit and I was able to impress him was kind of cool. Like, you know, and this was, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Young. Fucking surreal. It's my dream to meet Barker. I just want to have a conversation with Barker so bad. He's brought so much inspiration to me. I think his daughter was taking over some of the business because he was trying to focus on a children's book or some shit. And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't think you should do a children's book, dude. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I think his daughter was trying to run some of the Barker horror estate and he, cause he, I guess he was getting signed by a publisher to do a children. They really wanted to do a children's book. I'm like, how the fuck is that even going to be possible? The kid only shrinks, you know, like uh, <laughs> he did do it. He did do it too. Was it Aberat? Is that what it was? Yep. Aberat. There's all these different worlds and lands and they were at war with each other or some shit. Yeah, really when I read that, it actually sounds really fascinating from some, a lot of the stuff I've read about it. There were, there's several books. Uh, there's several books to this, right? Yeah, he yeah, ended up yeah. doing a kind of a series. Yeah, I think that's some. I think that is something big. He wanted to do an animation for a while, uh, too. But I think oh, it's so this is what he was talking about. I had no idea what the fuck he was talking about because after he dropped his name, I, I lost coherence. <laughs> yeah. Also, also, I just want to say I looked it up. Clive Barker was victorious in that HIV lawsuit. Oh, really? He was. <laughs> so, I think. Yeah. It was- after that fucking uh, Hellraiser, Hellbound Hard Money. Because, that, like, when he stopped contact, when we lost contact, was around that scandal. And I think uh, he was just trying to keep his fucking head down. Yeah. Out of curiosity, have you guys ever seen the movie Spring? It just really reminded me of the conversation of everything we talked about tonight. I, I haven't. Oh. So it was a fairly low budget thing from like 2014. But uh, basically, a guy 
goes from the U.S. to live in Italy. He's kind of like on on the run. Uh, he falls in love with a girl there, and it turns out she's actually like a primordial Lovecraftian monster who's been like alive since Pompeii. But her deal is like if she ever basically takes a mate, she loses her immortality and she gets a chance like once every hundred years to ovulate. What is so, this? Uh, it's a movie called Spring. So it's hmm. kind of like a Lovecraft meets uh, romance kind of type deal. It's a pretty cool movie. So yeah, this guy is trying to convince this girl to basically stop being immortal because he loves her and wants to start a family. But if she does that, then she'll die someday like a normal human being. So you know, it's kind of got that classic like Little Mermaid type kind of folktale twist to it. But still lots of tentacle monster action uh, happening on the sides. I'm going to have to look into this. It sounds cool as hell. And you know, for, just for the record, whenever I see like tentacles and squigglies in, in movies, I always just think, Lovecraft. And uh, <laughs> because they always do that shit. Guillermo del Toro does it a lot. Um, you look at Davy Jones from Pirates of the Caribbean. Like all yeah. there's all these Lovecraftian like bombshells. Um, I wanted to ask you before we, ha- we, we end the call, we're on this Greek mythology thing. Um, but I wanted to talk about M. Night Shyamalan, too, because he wrote um, – um, he's writing a really amazing trilogy right now, and he's already put out the second one for Unbreakable. And when you look at Unbreakable, Samuel Jackson had a line in that where he's talking about comic books and how comic books are a last link to something that somebody felt somewhere in life. And he related this to the idea that the Egyptians would draw on walls. They had their gods, and all these different mythologies had their gods. And – the current lore of um, the contemporary is comic books, and he thinks that it was something from an ancient past that's something that somebody felt in some time in their life and was able to do with whatever instinct that they had to fly or be invisible, and this got like caught up in the fucking commercial machine and became just something that people would sell for money, and that's why people lost touch with those, those emotions to feel empowered like Bruce Willis's character to be unbreakable in the sense. Um, and Sam Jackson was super and highly intelligent, more than the average individual could be. And uh, I always, I wanted to know what you guys thought about that, but then uh, relating to our previous conversation with religions and lores and then, you know, commercial content today. And um, cause it's a very interesting take the, even as an argument, if you were sitting down with M night Shyamalan, like where did he come up with that idea is or is it just comic books or just for the pop culture and just to shut our minds off or could they necessarily be held on the pedestal of poseidon and zeus and hera and the fucking titans and uranus and all these the the the, you know all those gods um and the norwegian gods too and the mythological uh, egyptian gods and all that stuff could those very well be put on the same pedestal and the other thing i was going to ask you uh, was um in terms of Greek, mytholo- Greek mythology movies, what would be your favorite? Um, that's an interesting conversation. Well, with Unbreakable, the thing I've always found interesting on that is Samuel Jackson is convinced of this idea and how important it is to be able to find these heroes. Uh, you know, he does everything in that movie so he can find heroes and prove they exist. Bruce Willis knows what he is, essentially, but he kind of hides from himself the entire movie. So even if that was the link back to people being greater things... The narrative falls on Bruce Willis saying, I don't want it. I don't want to be responsible for that. I don't want to be looked up to. I don't want to be adored. I'm just Bruce Willis, who's kind of a nondescript dude in that movie. So he, I, he didn't want it. He he actually, the only reason why he took it is because of the conversation that he had about purpose. It was the only thing that took away the sadness when he woke up every morning because he actually was doing something that he yeah. wanted, to, which was help people. 
Yeah, well, he does have the scene where he kind of goes out and even faces his fear about the pool and the water. To oh, man, that scene at fucking Penn Station up in fucking New York. Oh, my God, that was such a good scene where he's touching everybody and he was feeling the instinct of the shit that they've done in their lives. Fuck, that was an amazing scene. That's, <laughs> that's, one of my favorite that's the best scene Shyamalan's ever directed in his career. Like That, that scene alone is a masterpiece. Yes, it is, man. Just to him actually exploring the possibility that what this, uh, what Sam Jackson's character, Mr. Glass, is saying is reality, and he would just fucking put his hands out. And he's just – that when it was started backing the camera away and he's in the security poncho, and he, he would just reach out and let people touch him or bump into him. And just the, the, the sixth sense, that instinct of being able to know when people have done something wrong and be able to punish them for their crimes as a hero, he just – God, like I was 14 when I first watched this, and – you want to talk about what really made me want to be a storyteller? Shyamalan gets a lot of shit, but he's been one of my heroes for a long time since I saw that movie. And I always make fun of it, but man, when I first saw that, I knew that I wanted to tell stories and get into art. I was around the same age whenever that movie came out, and that was one of those, like, shows how long ago this was. That VHS, I watched over and over and over. And I, I love that you brought up the the monologue that Elijah gives in that movie about uh, comic books being the last link of, in the chain of something that goes all the way back to ancient man. That, that's a, a long tradition that there's some, that there's power in that. That was the first time I ever really started thinking about, you know, comic books and superheroes and just pop culture in general as something more than entertainment that these were, archetypes these were something sewn in permanently to the human condition that changes forms every few generations like you were asking earlier if you think you know characters like uh, batman and superman measure up to you know the gods of old it was like i don't really see a distinction there i mean you look at the history of myth like, what are the things we keep returning to almost as if like their instinct, there's the strong man, the alchemist, the detective, the perfect man who comes from the sky and makes everything good. We keep telling the same stories over and over and over again. Just different we just put them in different masks. Yeah, because then, and then you have a character like the Joker. He just he just has no motivation. He just wants to put pieces in play to see how things are going to fucking pop. Um, and that's what made him so interesting, and that's what made him so different as a psychopath. Um, that uh, is just like, you know what? I want to see what happens if I do this, and then fucking chaos. Um, he's almost like, and then you, he's almost reminds me of a fucking wilder Hannibal Lecter, because Hannibal Lecter, in a sense, in horror is the same way. He just, I don't know if you ever watched the TV show with Mads Mikkelsen. Oh, we are huge Hannibal mm -hmm. fans. You have no idea. Oh, that show really illustrated just to the depths of how far that guy will go to push people's buttons to get them to break. And they, he will do it in a way that you don't even know he's doing it. He just wants to see how people are going to fucking react. And that's what makes um, horror different from the comic scene because now you're breaching into the human psyche that is a universe on its own. And you never know what the fuck those motives are or where all that shit's coming from. Um, now, I wanted to ask you what... In terms of Greek mythology, what would be your favorite, uh, since we've been on this kick, what would be your favorite movies in the pop culture realm? Because there's a lot of bad ones out there, but there are some good ones. I'm, I'm sure I'll get some shit for this one because it's not a great movie, but I love the visuals of it. Uh, Tarsum Singh's Immortals from a few yes. years back. 
Oh, that's such a good one. Oh, man, I love that one. I know a lot of people say it's not a good movie, but it's a fun one to watch. I love that scene uh, with uh, uh, the... This version of the Minotaur fight is a lot of fun. I really like the design work that's going on there, like with the giant head and all the candles around it. And his version of the maze just kind of being like those weird... Oh, yeah. I love the way that was designed. Where he, the, the, the labyrinth is moving and blocks and shit are intersecting and it's like a puzzle being completely fucking um, worked at. at a, it's just such a unique way to, to do that, you know. Um, or I, the way he portrays the gods at the end where there's that all-out battle between uh, – oh, shit, I'm forgetting my basic terms here. Uh, fuck, Cronus's crew and uh, the actual gods coming down. Everything's kind of played almost like a PlayStation game where everything's tampering with speed and you've got your combo moves going on. It's like a big real-time event. Yeah, I love the way he made the the he gave them. He is a stunning visual filmmaker. Even with the cell, it was impressive. He um he made their designs. You could identify what god they were just by looking at their fucking gear. Like he made uh, Apollo's helmet look like rays of light. Um, in, in in the I like how what's his face was rolling his fucking Poseidon trident. Just like they just look cool. And the only thing that disappointed me about it was um. The Titans didn't really look like Titans. I, they looked cool, but they weren't. They were just <laughs> like much dirty dudes. Yeah, they look like a bunch of fucking. Um, I don't know. Uh, they just look like like scarier Umpalumpas. I mean, my my big disappointment in that film is just uh, if you look at the main storyline about you know one human trying to stand up and and stop. Uh, I forget all the characters' name. Hyperion from doing a shit. Really not important in the end, because Zeus sweeps in and basically takes care of everything once he fails a couple of times. So the, the main plot doesn't really resolve into anything, which is a such a weird disconnect. But the visuals are absolutely outstanding. And the designs are so good, it makes up for like that weird, weird ending where it's like, eh, there was a trial that humans didn't really do much on, doesn't really matter. Well, I'm not sure if, if, if this would fall under mythology. I guess it would, because it, it's, um, it's, it's Greek lore, but it's more it's more based on like literature but i would say that troy was definitely one of my favorite uh commercial greek film it's just it was the uncut version was so good like it was just fucking good like i just really like that yeah. um that whole iliad of that uh, the other thing that really um we're talking about salmon i never touched on this but um we're t- talking about taking an idea that you want to when you write a story and you look at your inspirations and then you want to base it on Something that's done really well. You look at Lion King; it's obviously Macbeth, right? So when it came to the Zero Mirror, the the idea of following a deity around came from Sandman. But the structure of my story and, and on this journey came from the Odyssey. The Odyssey is one of my favorite stories. So when you look at uh, that TV version of the Odyssey and you look at the way that the the live action film tried, I think that would probably be my favorite. I just I really like that movie. It's enjoyable. Going off of that idea, I would I would say my favorite take of the Odyssey is uh, O Brother Where Art Thou. I mean, Man. not a literal adaption of it, but it definitely follows and takes a lot of cues from that. And the way they're able to transport that into such a different setting and not make it super, the Cullen super brothers obvious. Film? Yeah. The That's a, there's, like, describe to me, like, your, your, how you see the Odyssey. I've never noticed. So, uh, such as John Goodman's character is the Cyclops. He's got his eye patch on. He beats up his crew. He takes what he wants from him. Uh, they get set back a bunch of times. In the end, he's trying to reach his homeland and his wife because there's a pretender coming back for the throne. One of them gets turned into a frog by Cyrus. Oh, shit. Didn't there's, even fucking yeah, there's, went over my head. 
Yeah, well, that's the perfect thing about it. It's not hammering you with it. They're not kind of winking at the camera every two seconds when they make a reference. But there's enough in there where you can definitely be like, oh, okay, that's that's what they're up to. They're trying to essentially take that story and wrap it into the 1920s. And did they're you very yourself, Or did you read that somewhere, like somebody having this analysis? Because that'd be really good on you. That's a good eye, man, if you saw that yourself. Oh, I can't take credit for that one. That's That's definitely out there. Yeah, the Coen brothers were very upfront about that when that movie came out. Like, this is just our take on the Odyssey. Yeah, or like the blind guy on the handrail is kind of like their oracle. Yeah, that's that's basically one of my favorite stories, how I named my dog Odysseus. Uh, he's one of my favorite <laughs> Greek heroes. Um, I was telling Mike knew that a while ago. Uh, but yeah, I, I love that story. I think it's fucking incredible. Um, actually, when I went last time to Greece, the only thing I wanted for myself was um, written in Greek, one of Plato's dialogues, which is his story of the creation of the universe, Timaeus. I have a, a hard copy of it written in Greek. So when I go back, I'm going to try to find a nice hardcover copy of the Odyssey written in Greek. That's just something that I would like for myself. Oh, that'd be, oh, that'd be, God. Yeah, that'd be fucking cool, right? I can't read this shit. It looks fucking ancient and badass. <laughs> but That's the point. You, you have, I man. would hug it to sleep every single night. <laughs> yeah. But I got to get going. I'm going to get some food, and I'm going to try to get some more commissions done tonight, man. I really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, really, oh, really appreciate you stopping by. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to come back and, uh, and bullshit about uh, what happens, uh, what I did out there. So look forward to it. All right, guys. You enjoy yourself, and it was nice talking and meeting you guys. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now, please, please, please... Put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. Graphic Novelism presents Code Disapproved, a new miniseries coming 2018. Graphic Novelism presents Code Disapproved, a new miniseries coming. 2018. Graphic Novelism presents Code Disapproved, a new miniseries coming 2018. A new miniseries coming 2018. This meeting will come to order. The Legion of Pope is now in session. In a moment, iTunes. Yes, Quizmotron. I was wondering, Emperor Palpatine, if I could perhaps. Box Office Pulp thinks we need a few items to pawn on the black market. Box Office Pulp guy, you have a podcast dedicated to movie analysis. Pinhead, your pleasure puzzles are deadly. Isaac, you've. you've got corn! Corn? What more do you need? How about a nuclear warhead? What? All other supervillains have them. With a nuclear warhead, I shall leave all of the podcasts to tear themselves apart with paranoia. Box off his Pope wants a magic lasso to hang himself with. Can I get a ship in a bottle kit? I demand more corn. To make my own ship in a bottle. Oh, enough of this. The hell do I look like, Santa Claus? 
We're wasting valuable time. Right now, my Pope drones are rewriting Apple's code to make our podcast number one on iTunes. Excuse me, Emperor. Quizmotron, what is it? All Quizmotron wants is pants. A decent pair of pants. Darth Vader wants pants, too. Order! Order! Tune in next week at popodcastnetwork.wordpress.com I don't even know how I deal with any of you on a daily basis.